Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready? This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. You know what time it is. It's My Take Radio, episode 23 for Thursday, December 10th, 2009. I'm your host, Rich, and the music you just heard was The Omen of Geneva. The artist is Neko Frog One, N-E-K-O-F-R-O-G, the number one. If you'd like to download that or any of the other tracks that have been used in previous episodes, head over to ocremix.org. Uh, the call-in number, of course, is 347-324-3541 if you'd like to call in and discuss any of tonight's topics. Uh, first on the list, uh, the art contest is officially closed. Those of you that have entries, please make sure to forward them uh, before midnight Eastern time to be considered for entry in the My Take Radio logo contest. Um, I've been getting some really nice entries so far. Um, a lot of you that have said that they will be submitting entries are running late, and you guys are under the wire right now, just by a hair of your ass. So please, if you're going to submit any artwork, kindly submit it before midnight tonight to be considered. Um, also, for the next two weeks, um, of course, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, um, there will be a My Take Radio episode on the 23rd. And there may or may not be one the 30th. I'm still uh, deliberating that. But it's one of those things uh, that's, you know, going to be a game-time decision. So with that said, you know, art, art contest entrance, please have your stuff in uh, by midnight. And for holiday shows, stay tuned to future episodes. As of right now, uh, there will be one on Wednesday the 23rd. Not sure about uh, one for the New Year's Eve show, though all the day prior to New Year's Eve, we shall see. Nonetheless, let's talk about some of tonight's topics. Uh, The Ultimate Fighter finale, we're going to talk a little about that. Uh, Brock Lesnar not being out of the woods yet, even though he had surgery, he is not out of the woods yet. We'll go into that a little bit. Uh, Dan Henderson to Strike Force. it is official. Um, We're going to break down a little bit of the Spike VGA Awards, which are this Saturday at 8 p.m. on Spike. Um, I'm also going to discuss something very strange that's going on that Josh brought to my attention regarding game developers tweaking games for profit. Um, Of course, we're going to talk about the MPD numbers because they are serious. You're going to hear a shitload of anger regarding some Spider-Man forecasting that I read about earlier this week that has me partially hopeful and then utterly disgusted all at the same time. Um, A little bit about Max Steel, the movie. Uh, Yes, there is going to be a movie based on the good old... uh, Max Steel toy line, and of course, a ton of other shit. So, before going into this week's MMA news, um, I am a little exhausted. I took the opportunity and decided to upgrade my television recently. Um, I switched from a little Black Friday special I had uh, from a company called Element, which has a really 
Uh, it was a really awesome television. It was a 720p, 1080i, 32-inch uh, screen. Just a workhorse, did great work after um, being calibrated properly. Decided to upgrade a little bit. Uh, went up to a 40-inch, uh, 1080p sharp. Has four millisecond response time. Um, one of the things that a lot of people seem to, especially gamers, um, you know, a lot of them, myself included, you know, we become enamored with all the new technology and all this shit and that shit and all these bells and whistles. But at the end of the day, you want it boils down to um, brand quality and, of course, um, the response time, which I hadn't really given a lot of merit to. And after I researched it more, I realized that um, millisecond response time is crucial for gamers and it's one of those things that can make or break some of those games that you enjoy the most um, me in particular I'm a very big Street Fighter fan so I play a lot of Street Fighter and there were instances where I noticed lag um, playing my um, Street Fighter on my previous television and I thought nothing of it because you know it, it, you don't really think of it but in terms of breaking it down to nuts and bolts the uh, millisecond response time, um, some of the newer TVs, they just got, you know, four millisecond. Two, so there's even some that go as far as, as boasting that they have a two millisecond response time. Uh, the TV I picked up has four milliseconds, runs really well. Um, I'm still tweaking it and calibrating it. Um, the 1080p picture difference is extremely prevalent considering I went from a 32 to a 40. And um, overall, so far, I am highly satisfied. Um, one of the things that... Swayed, almost swayed my decision towards a plasma was a recent article that I was reading regarding burn-in and the fact that, you know, in many cases it's a non-existent issue and the fact that, you know, plasma TVs are relatively inexpensive, start at a larger size, and, you know, they have uh, 600 megahertz of uh, refresh rate, some of them, versus, you know, the standard 120 and the newly released 240. Um, definitely was swaying me in that direction. Um, space constraints, given uh, the way my bedroom is situated, eliminated that. So nonetheless, uh, new TV is definitely a plus for some of the new games coming out. So I figured I'd share a little bit of a personal insight with you guys. Uh, with that said, let's talk a little MMA. First off, the Ultimate Fighter finale. If, the, if any of you have been by MyTakeRadio.com recently, you'll notice um, a lengthy post I put regarding some of my thoughts on the um, Ultimate Fighter finale. First off, I want to say that the finale was solid. Uh, there was solid action throughout. Um, a lot of um, unexpected surprises, let's, go, let's put it that way, um, came out of this event. But we'll start with the first. Um, one of the fights I was looking forward to was the heavyweight title fight. Well, heavyweight title fight. Heavyweight fight between uh, Marcus Big Baby Jones and Matt Mitrione. Um, who, when the Ultimate Fighter ended, um, were having a lot of personal issues. It seems that Marcus Jones uh, went from being nice, gentle giant to raving lunatic and definitely um, added some incentive to the fight. Nonetheless, I expected Marcus Jones to come in there and pretty much separate Matt Mitrione's head from his body. Unfortunately, you know, Marcus Jones came in, he took the first round, but I did notice that the fact that Marcus Jones had a very robotic stand-up was, you know, one of those things where, you know, his stand-up was, it showed, uh, 
a little bit of an experience. I mean, his ground game, fantastic submission attempts were spot on, but his stand-up just seemed very awkward. And um, it, it showed in round two because in round two, uh, Jones got put to sleep by Mitrione with a right, and um, he ended up winning the fight by KO. Um, Mitrione was very humble. You know, he said that Marcus Jones was a great opponent. Uh, he gave him his props. Now, the thing with Marcus Jones personally for me is the fact that he he has great presence. He looks like a guy that can be, um, you know, he can be a force in the heavyweight division. He just probably needs to get himself into a good camp and get himself set up with a good team that will help him work on his stand-up game because his ground game is, it is really smooth, really crisp. His submissions and his submission attempts were well-placed. And, you know, he seemed comfortable on the ground but not as comfortable in the stand-up, which, you know, while unfortunate, you know, stand-ups, uh, there's two sides to the fight game, the ground and the stand-up. And if your stand-up sucks, guess what? You're getting knocked the fuck out. And that's what happened to our good buddy Marcus Jones. Um, another fight I wanted to discuss, of course, is the Houston Alexander and Kimbo Slice fight. Now, I expected this fight to go bell rings. They meet in the center of the cage and just pound the shit out of it. They just beat the fuck out of each other. Unfortunately... That is not what happened. Uh, round one was pretty much uh, Houston Alexander working his leg kicks and dancing around the cage. That's what he was doing. And, you know, it, he wasn't engaging Kimbo, and Kimbo you know, probably was haunted by his loss to Seth Petrozelli and Elite XZ that he did not want to run in there and, you know, get, get knocked out, which isn't, you know, a, a, something, a respectable thing, you know, no harm in that. But Houston Alexander just proceeded to just dance his ass off in the first, in the first round. And, you know, it was very annoying. A lot of people were very disheartened. Um, I'm going to discuss what Dana White had to say later on. But the fact is that Houston Alexander worked a leg and danced around for the first round. Uh, in round two, definitely a bit more... Um, of an action-packed round. They engaged a little bit more. Uh, Kimbo Slice proceeded to um, introduce what he learned from Rampage to Houston Alexander with a very well-executed suplex. Uh, it was a, definitely a highlight reel moment and set the pace for the fight going forward. One of the things I enjoyed was the fact that the crowd was so behind Kimbo Slice, which is amazing because if you look back at, at, at about a year or so or a little bit more, um, before Kimbo was in the UFC, the, the MMA populace, you know, really didn't like him. They felt that, you know, he was being pushed too soon, things of that nature, and the fans were actually soured on Kimbo without giving him a fair shot. You know, I mean, I, I got to be honest, the guy took an opportunity that was presented to him and ran with it. The fact is, he, um, he put on a fantastic performance, a lot of great ground and pound, and what's crazy is the fact that when the fight went to the ground, Kimbo Slice, you know, he, he was comfortable, especially on top mount position. The only thing that was crazy is the fact that Kimbo Slice wasn't waiting to, to, to capitalize. He was going in there to just knock him out, and he was dropping some serious bombs on him. Uh, round three, a uh, little bit of back and forth, but the exhaustion definitely was kicking in. Um, Houston Alexander continued to work the leg kick. He actually knocked Kimbo down. There was one point where he did... Uh, stumble Kimbo with an elbow, but it was too little too late when the round ended. It ended up that the fight went to a unanimous decision, and Kimbo Slice uh, won the fight. Now, the way I see it, Kimbo Slice 
very talented fighter. Um, you know, this fight was fought at a catch weight of 215. He's saying that he's going to fight at a 205. Whether that happens or not remains to be seen. But the fact is that you saw something very unique in Kimbo's life that you don't see in, in certain fighters, and that's the fact that you're really watching um, a person's talent and what they're, what they're learning really start to pay off. You know, his ground game was weak on the Ultimate Fighter season. When he fought this time, ground game was improved. Now, you know, submit, he even almost had a submission at one point. So, you know, you're starting to see a real evolution of a guy who, you know, is, is for all intents and purposes, the American success story. So it was definitely, you know, a good thing for uh, Mr. Slice to pull out the victory. Um, John Jones and Matt Hamill was your light heavyweight fight. Um, I got to tell you, first off, I'm a huge Matt Hamill fan. Um, he's an inspiration to millions of deaf, deaf Americans that are out there um, in our country as well as across the world. The fact is, you know, he's a guy that is lacking one of his five senses, can go in there and just puts on punishment on people. And, you know, it, it's very inspirational. He has a great story. And I, I personally, you know, he seems like a really humble, really nice dude, and I enjoy watching him fight. Now, one of the things that, I didn't know too much about was John Jones, other than a couple of highlight reels and the fact that he has a very unique offense. I had, you know, I had Matt Hamill pegged as the victor off the bat because, like I said, he's a dude that, you know, he comes in there, he bullies you with his wrestling and does fantastic stand-up. The only thing was that John Jones has the most insane offense I've seen. He has some really unique takedowns, really unique strikes. Um, I actually posted in the article that I put up on MyTakeRadio.com one of the uh, uh, takedowns that John Jones used on Matt Hamill. Um, unfortunately, the fight ended up being ended by DQ at, because John Jones took a top-mount position, and rather than doing uh, the standard elbow strike, he was doing what's called a 12-6, to 6, um, which, you know, obviously you look at a clock. He was going from straight up, straight down. Um, it ended up breaking or overall injuring Matt Hamill's nose to the point where uh, I, we got to see a very disturbing visual where his eyes were pretty much filled with, his eye sockets were pooled with blood, which while it was pretty cool, it was uh, pretty scary to say the least. But uh, nonetheless, it turns out that Matt Hamill also ended up uh, dislocating his shoulder so he couldn't defend himself. But in terms of the fight, it was ruled a DQ uh, for John Jones and the victory was given to Matt Hamill. I think personally... Um, Matt Hamill put on a great performance, but John Jones didn't lose the fight, per se. You know, for all intents and purposes, on paper, he was winning. Um, it's highly unfortunate, the disqualification, but uh, John Jones is 22 years old. You know, he's 9-1 and one now. Just, I'm more than sure his future is nothing but bright going forward, and I think that he's going to be... Uh, a force to be reckoned with at light heavyweight, especially, you know, if he continues just being humble and going out there and using his unique offense against his opponents, he's, he's going to gain a lot of fans and he's going to get a lot of attention. Um, he definitely gained me as a fan and gained my respect for uh, being humble and accepting the DQ law. So it was definitely really cool to see. Um, of course, we move into the heavyweight fight with uh, Brendan Schaub and Roy Big Country Nelson. Um, first off, Roy Nelson came out to I'm Fat by Weird Al Yankovic. Figured I'd throw that out there because it was highly amusing. Now, in terms of the, of the fight itself, Roy Nelson went in, used his typical um, 
strategy. And, you know, he tried to use that, and he had half guard um, side control at one point. But Schaub, you know, was a stronger guy, was able to power out. But it, the fight ended pretty much with a right hand from Roy Nelson that put Brendan to sleep. And the fight was over just like that. Um, Roy Nelson, of course, is your Ultimate Fighter Season 10 champion by knockout in round one. Now, I really didn't like Roy Nelson. I'm more than sure you guys have heard all the shit that I've given him. And, you know, to some extent, I still, I still give him a little shit. But the fact remains that he was very humble and presented himself in a, um, in a very... Um, you know, he was just glad to be there, and, you know, he, he took the hard road to get into the UFC, and I had to applaud him for that. I also applauded him for the fact that, you know, he came out there, he acknowledged that he had a game opponent, and that, you know, he was, he was thankful. And in some respects, like I said, he, he gained, you know, he gained my respect. And not only that, but he just lended, you know, some credibility to the fact that you don't have to look like a Greek god to be a fighter. You know, if you look at Roy Nelson, he looks like a fucking butcher at a grocery store. You know, he looks like that guy. He looks like a trucker. You know, he doesn't look like your, your atypical, you know, street fighter physique-having fighter. You know, he's just a regular dude that, you know, is, is deceivingly strong. You know, the guy knows how to use his weight. He knows how to use his girth. And, you know, he knows how to apply that towards powerful striking. And not only that, but he moves very fast has great flexibility and, and fantastic jiu-jitsu skills. So, you know, in some respects, I ate a little humble pie and, you know, shitting on him too much. But nonetheless, he's, I'm not 100% behind the guy, but I support what he's trying to stand for. And with that, you know, i got to give him some credit where credit is due. And with that, it looks like we may have our first caller. Caller, you're on the air. I have a feeling this was... Dave from Denver, and uh, it is Dave from Denver. Yep. What's going on, man? Not much, not much. What's going on with you, man? Great show. Thank you, sir. What can I do for you? What do you got for me? Uh, not a whole lot. Just listen to your show. I'm I'm sorry. Did I hit one by accident? I think you did. Yeah, I saw the little hand up. But um, you know, if you just hit one whenever you're ready, I'll bring you back in. Okay. I'm sorry about that. All right. That's all right. All right. But overall, the Ultimate Fighter finale lived up to all the hype. Um, very, very surprising, you know, that Roy Nelson won. I really had Shaw pegged to take the victory. Um, Kimbo Slice didn't deliver the fireworks that I expected, but it was a solid performance by Kimbo. And, um, you know, Marcus Jones, man, you, you know, he got caught, and I'm more than sure he'll bounce back, hopefully, and we'll see him again. Um, now let's go into some real MMA news. Uh, first off, uh, KJ Nunes, who was the uh, strike, the Elite XC light heavy lightweight champion, excuse me, um, signed recently with Strikeforce and should be possibly debuting at the December 19th show. Um, KJ Nunes defeated Nick Diaz for the Elite XC title at one point and defended it against Eve Edwards before being stripped of the title due to a contract dispute. Um, K.J. Nunes is a great fighter, has great stand-up, and, um, you know, I felt let down that I couldn't see a rematch between him and Nick Diaz. Of course, now with Nick Diaz being in strike force as well as K.J. Nunes, we should be seeing that sooner rather than later. 
on some more, you know, upbeat news, it seems that Rampage um, is coming back to the UFC. He announced on his website that he would be returning to the UFC, and he stated the following. He goes, I want to let my fans know that I'm going to be coming back to the UFC and finishing my contract. Not because of the haters that are talking shit about me being scared of Rashad or of titties or anybody else. Of course, you have to throw titties in there. I'm coming back for my fans and to shut Rashad's mouth and to shut Dana's mouth up. Then after that, I'm, gonna go, I'm going back to doing movies, and I might do a boxing match once a year just to stay in shape. Um, of course, as a fan, I'm glad he's back. And like I said, I felt, you know, that there was no payoff to the Ultimate Fighter season when after all the animosity between the two coaches, it couldn't be solved in the octagon. Obviously, uh, Rampage felt the same way and is coming back to take care of business. Now, of course, Rashad is going to be fighting, I believe he's going to be fighting next month. So I'm more than sure if he wins... He'll fight Rampage. If he loses, who knows what they'll do. But I also need to know how many fights Rampage has on his contract. So i got to find that out as well because of all things, you know there's going to be um, a title fight if he, if he goes in there, beats Rashad's ass, and you know, gets a couple of victories. He might be able to get a title fight out before uh, his contract is up. So I'm very happy Rampage is back. Um, definitely looking forward to him and Rashad Evans locking up in the near future. Uh, Strike Force took the opportunity to announce that Herschel Walker, Nick Diaz, and Chris Cyborg Santos will be fighting on their January 30th event. Uh, Nick Diaz and Cyborg will be co-main events that night. Um, Strike Force, I'm, I'm really impressed with how they're handling themselves. They're starting to sign some, some decent fighters. They're starting to try and you know, get themselves out there. And, you know, I wish him the best of, of luck. I mean, you know, their, their show that's coming up in December should be very interesting. I, I'm still waiting to see if it's going to be uh, on uh, CBS or on Showtime. But nonetheless, either way, I think Strikeforce, you know, is, is, a, is a good number two promotion. Um, you know, of course, Dan Henderson signed with them, and he ended up going for a four-fight deal. There's a rumor that he will be debuting for the card in April that's going to be on CBS, and he's either going to fight at 185 or 205. Of course, fighting at 185, he's already been offered a shot by uh, Jake Shields. So we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, he stated he wanted to fight Fedor, and you know what? Who doesn't? But one of the things I don't like, and, and it goes into this, this thing with Fedor, is that um, Strikeforce light heavyweight champion Gegard Mousasi, of course, is um, in Strike Force, and everybody, of course, instantly wanted to see Hendo fight uh, Gegard Musasi. One thing that I didn't know and found out recently, according to Bloody Elbow, is the fact that in his contract, uh, Gegard Musasi can only fight on the same cards that Fedor is fighting on, according to the agreement, of course, put on through M1 Global and Strike Force. Um, I personally think that that's utter horseshit because. You know, you're the light heavyweight champion. When the fuck are you going to defend your belt if Fedor is, you know, injured or whatever? So you basically got to wait till Fedor gets better. It's ridiculous. I think that, you know, that aspect, you know, Strikeforce definitely got the short end of the stick. I'm not a fan of the fact that, you know, he only can fight when Fedor fights. I think that's a load of shit. And if I were the guys at Strikeforce, I would look to remedying that immediately. Just for the fact that, you know, if you can't have Fedor headline a fight, 
for whatever reason, and Musasi being a champion can headline a fight, what are you going to do then? You know, you're backing yourself into a corner. And I think that that's a, a, a really stupid move by Strikeforce if they're going to let that rock. I, I'm not a fan of that at all. Um, but we'll see what happens. If anybody wants to see Musasi fight, he'll be fighting New Year's Eve in Japan in a K-1 rules bout, which will probably be on pay-per-view or on HDNet for those of you guys that have HDNet. Um, the UFC confirmed UFC 109, which is going to be taking place February 6th in Vegas. Uh, we're going to see the Battle of Legends between Mark Coleman and Randy Couture. Uh, Josh Koscheck is going to try to avenge his loss to Paulo Thiago. Uh, Little Nog is going to be fighting Brandon Vera. Nate Marquardt is going to fight Chow Shonen. And Matt Serra, New York's own, and one of, one of my favorite fighters, is going to fight Frank Trigg, who, of course, is one of my other favorite fighters. So it should be a, definitely a good night of fights in February. The preliminary card is really good, too. Damian Maya's on it fighting Dan Miller. Mac Danzig's on that card. Melvin Gillard, Rob Emerson, and Felipe Nova are on there, as is Rolls Gracie and Mustafa Al-Turk. So the preliminary card, I'm really hoping some of those fights can get on, uh, on Spike. Especially, I really would like to see the uh, Gracie and Al-Turk fight, and definitely uh, the Melvin, Melvin Gillard and Ronnie Torres fight. So we'll see what happens with that. Now, recently I read um, an article, I actually read this yesterday, about uh, some of the sponsors that are having, you know, there's always an issue with sponsors every, every couple of years. You know, when Affliction decided to start their own promotion, of course the UFC and WEC uh, banned fighters from wearing Affliction, um, things of that nature. Uh, the newest one seems to be a company called Holzerreich, which um, makes uh, clothing-themed with various symbols that are familiar with Nazi Germany. Um, it seems that the uh, general manager of WEC, Reed Harris, felt that those clothes um, symbolized Nazism, including, you know, such symbols as the Iron Cross, uh, the Totenkopf skull, and, mo and other s models and symbols that were associated with Nazi Germany. Um, one of the things is, I actually took the opportunity and went to their site and looked at some of the shirts. And, you know, if there are some shirts that if you check out, they definitely look a little, you know, they have certain little markings that are, uh, you know, World War II-esque in, in certain respects. And I'm more than sure some people, but you really got to look close. And not for nothing, if the fighter's wearing the shirt and they're walking out, you got to look. I mean, if the fighter's not a racist and the company's not, using a racist agenda, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a real slippery slope. Um, of course, they interviewed the co-owners of Holzerreich, and they said the following, we do not have any political affiliations with any organizations nor specific views of any controversial parties. Our interest in the Iron Cross and German history comes strictly from a historical and ancestral standpoint. For many years, we have collected German memorabilia dating back to the early 1800s, which has been passed through my family for generations. The Iron Cross symbol and other German-inspired imagery used on our apparel dates back hundred, hundreds of years and does not depict a certain time in German history. Now, you know, that argument is true. It, it, it's one of those things where, but, but once again, if you look at certain, especially um, on certain shirts and you see certain markings, especially they have a skull that's wearing, you know, like a, like a captain's hat and he has um, some small... Uh, insignias and marks on the collar, those marks are usually, um, you know, those little small medals and detailing is something that's familiar with the Nazi uniform. 
Now, you know, like I said, I'm really torn on it because it's something that you don't really notice when the fighter walks out. Yeah, you go, oh, yeah, that's a cool shirt, but you're not really looking for the message in the shirt. And then if the guys are saying that, you know, they're not, it's not meant to be racist, then you've got to look at it from the fact that if these symbols were used before, I mean, the same argument can be used for Triple H and WWE. You know, he has a lot of iron crosses on a lot of his merchandise. I mean, what are you going to say? Triple H is a Nazi, and the WWE is using, you know, um, imagery associated with the Nazi party. It's, it's, you know, it's definitely something that I want to see develop a little further. Um, I'm hoping that they put out some other clothes that they can use because, you know, it's unfortunate that a startup company doesn't get the chance to shine because some people are, you know, uh, iffy in terms of their, uh, uniforms. I mean, in terms of the uh, apparel they're providing. So we're going to see definitely how that pans out. Um, the next Ultimate Fight Night is January 11th. Um, definitely want to see that. The main card for that fight is going to be Nate Diaz fighting Gray Maynard. Uh, Amir Sadala is going to be fighting Brad Blackburn. Evan Dunham is going to fight uh, Ultimate Fighter winner Efrain Escudero. And Tom Lawler is also going to be on that card uh, fighting Aaron Simpson. Um, now, our good old buddy Brock Lesnar. Uh, Greg Nelson, who's Brock Lesnar's trainer, spoke with MMA Weekly recently, and he said that, you know, Brock's feeling better. He's still on the mend. Um, he's not doing any major training, but, you know, he's spending some time with his kids, and he's saying that he's not 100% sure when he can start to train, but, you know, he knows that Brock is very anxious. He doesn't like sitting around too quick, but he knows that he, um, you know, this is an injury and this is a situation that needs to, you know, recover at the natural pace and not something that can be accelerated. Um, I think personally that he has, um, you know, he's being treated so far, it's, it's being said that he's being treated for diverticulitis and um, he's been dealing with it for over a year, as you all know. And, you know, Dana White was saying that there's no timetable specifically for uh, the champ's return. He's saying that, you know, he's going to have definitely a long road towards recovery. And, it, you know, it's unfortunate, but there's a rumor saying that he'll be ready to go in July. Me, personally, I would rather he take his time and, you know, heal up the right way because you don't want to rush it and end up, you know, doing yourself more harm than good, especially when you're a heavyweight champion, you know, and pretty much the face of your organization, much less the, the face of your division. So, personally, I hope that he uh, takes his time and heals up right. That way he can defend the belt appropriately and, of course, there's no, um, there's no argument if he were to lose the belt. Oh, he didn't heal up correctly. He didn't have a proper training camp, yada, yada, yada. So, again, I wish him a speedy recovery, and I hope that, you know, he heals up at the right pace and doesn't try and cut corners to heal up faster. Um, and, of course, as I said earlier in the broadcast, uh, the Dana White... Uh, Houston Alexander commentary, Dana White confirmed at a UFC pre-event press conference that Houston Alexander is going to be cut from the UFC. He stated the following regarding his thoughts on the fight. I was going to leave. I was going to get up and walk out of the fight. That's what I thought of it. If I didn't have to hand out the Ultimate Fighter trophy at the end of the event, I would have left that night. It wasn't a good fight for me. As disgusted as I was with Houston Alexander's performance, Kimbo beat a real guy. The last thing I expected was for Houston Alexander to come in and do the Caleb Starnes. Uh, for those of you not familiar with that, Caleb Starnes fought in the UFC and pretty much spent the majority of his, of his fight uh, doing a lot of running around the cage and not engaging either. Uh, Dana White you know, was so mad that he didn't even want to discuss it any further. Um, of course, 
uh, UFC fans are going to be able to tune into the Video Game Awards this Saturday, and uh, Forrest Griffin and Kimbo Slice are going to be there, and they're going to introduce some footage for UFC Undisputed 2010, um, which is also up for the Fighting Game of the Year Award. Personally, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping that I can get the video a little early uh, so I can put it up on MyTakeRadio.com. But who knows? We'll see what happens. With that said, let's uh, close out the MMA segment and go into some wrestling. First off, I'd like to send my condolences to the Fatu and Anonai family. Uh, WWE, former WWE superstar Umaga passed away on December 4th. Um, as of right now, I'm not aware of what his cause of death was. It seemed that he was home with his family. He was sleeping. Um, his wife went to check up on him. He was bleeding from his nose. They said he ended up having a stroke. I don't know how legit and how true that is. And he, I believe he was also, at, at that point, brain dead. Um, you know, very unfortunate passing. I believe he was 36 years old. Um, you know, family man, leaves behind a wife, some children, you know, and just a very um, big hole in the, uh, in the WWE locker room in the sense that he was, you know, well on the road to coming back to the WWE. He was recently touring with Hulk Hogan in Australia, and uh, Hulk Hogan in an interview said that he had offered Umaga uh, a spot on the TNA roster, and, you know, he politely declined because he was going to be coming back to the WWE and, debut, you know, re-debuting at the Royal Rumble. So, you know, it's, a, it's unfortunate that another, another wrestler, is, another, you know, young talent is taken from us. And, you know, I really am curious as to the cause of death. You know, he may have had pre-existing heart condition. Uh, they were saying that there were, a, you know, he was addicted to painkillers at one point. You know, who knows, but this leads back to the, to the thing of, you know, a lot of these guys are on the road so many times during the year, and you're just beating the shit out of your body. And, you know, you've you got to find ways to cope, and you look towards, you know, drugs, alcohol, uh, prescription medicine to fill that void. And, you know, these are the things that we end up dealing with um, as fans. You know, these guys get taken away from us. You know, Eddie Guerrero, um, another one, same thing happened. You go, you go down the list of fantastic wrestlers that, you know, their lives have been cut short, Mr. Perfect. Rick Rude, you know, I, I can, the list goes on and on. And, you know, it's highly unfortunate. And in, uh, in all honesty, it leads to what I was saying um, to a friend of mine, that there really should be some sort of an off-season or maybe just a way that the rosters can switch up. And you, not only it'll allow the organizations to bring up new talent, but on the same token, it'll let a lot of these guys, you know, that are on the road get some rest. Because, you know, there's, they're probably wrestling with injuries, and it seems that their spots in the company are dictated, you know, on popularity and such. And if they're off the TV for even a little bit, that popularity is going to be lost. And, you know, that, that affects their incomes, of course, and their merchandise. So it's very unfortunate. Me, personally, I, I really would like to see something more streamlined in, in place, especially for the WWE organization regarding how its performers are on the road for so many times during the year. Um, TNA, of course, you know, does most of their stuff pre-taped. They tour a little bit, but not to the extent that WWE does, given, of course, that WWE is a larger organization. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely saddened by the loss of Umaga because he was one of those dudes that, you know, big dude, he moved quick, he had a really unique look about him. And, you know, he, you know a lot of people said that he was, his character was created to compete, you know, to be WWE's answer to Samoa Joe. I honestly think that while that may have been partially true, um, Umaga brought 
his character forward to differentiate himself from Samoa Joe. So, you know, of course, um, I'd like to pass on my condolences to his family. Um, if any of you guys watch uh, the Ultimate Fighter season finale, you got to see Joe Rogan interview Hulk Hogan, who took the opportunity to confirm that um, TNA will be going against WWE on January 4th with a three-hour broadcast. He feels that this will be the start of the new Monday Night War and that they are going to, you know, just go right straight into WWE's territory by competing in the three-hour time slot on Raw. Now, here's, here's the funny thing. When, when I read the breakdown of the Ultimate Fighter finale, a lot of fans chimed in, and they were like, you know, what the fuck is Hulk Hogan doing there? Fucking wrestling, MMA, it's two separate shits. Why are they fucking doing this? Blah, 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 this, that, and the third. You know, I'm going to tell you, first off, Joe Rogan is fantastic. His, his reaction to Hulk Hogan cutting one of his, what you going to do, brother, when the UFC runs wild? I'm like, oh, fuck, dude. Can you just say you're going to be competing against TNA and not cut a fucking promo? This is not raw. This is not... WCW, it's the UFC, and by doing that, you're, you're, you know, making yourself look like a fucking douche. Can you just be, you know, Hulk Hogan, the businessman, instead of Hulk Hogan, say your prayers, you know, take your vitamins, Hulk Hogan. It was, it was kind of awkward, especially for Joe Rogan, because you can see that he was holding back the laughter, but... Some, you know, the MMA audience that's really hardcore was like, oh man, this is fucking bullshit, da 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 but they don't think of the fact that at the end of the day, Spike TV's paying the bills, especially, you know, in regards to the Ultimate Fighter um, on Spike, as well as TNA. There's no harm in a little cross-promotion. It's not like, you know, fucking Matt Sarah's going to run out and hit Kurt Angle with a chair on Impact or any shit like that. You know, it was just a little quick promotion, you know, 20 seconds of your life, get the fuck over it. But, of course, you know, you're going to get those purists, no, man, this is fucking up the sport, man, blah, blah. It's like, look, you can't be doing that, you know. You have to acknowledge the fact that these organizations are businesses, and businesses thrive on partnerships. And the fact that TNA got mentioned to the UFC audience, you know, it might make a couple of guys want to tune in and check out Impact, you know, whether to see Hulk Hogan, whether to, you know, just uh, see the nostalgia of a Monday Night War. I think January 4th is going to be very interesting, and we're really going to find out what kind of programming WWE is going to bring to the occasion. You know, they're going to bring to the occasion, given that, you know, competition breeds creativity. So, personally, I'm definitely looking forward to January 4th. Uh, next week's Raw is going to be a three-hour show, uh, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be hosted by Dennis Miller, and we're going to see the return of the Slammy Awards. Um, Raw this week the travesty that, is wa that it was, was hosted by uh, the one and only Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban. Now, while I don't think that the Raw was totally shit, it really bugs me out certain hosts because they just don't fit. I mean, I give Mark Cuban credit for, you know, getting put through a fucking table and getting his ass beat. You know, that's really cool, especially because he's a billionaire, so it's very amusing. But... The fact is that certain hosts just don't fit. You know, I'm reading that I, I believe December 28th, Timbaland is going to be hosting Raw, which I'm more than sure is just going to be a shill for Shock Value number two. And I'm more than sure there's going to be divas dancing to music from Shock Value 2. It's going to be uh, interesting, to say the least. But um, 
definitely the Raw from De- with Dennis Miller hosting looks like it's going to be amusing just because Dennis Miller's humor um, may or may not go over well depending on the audience. You know, he has a very dry, sardonic, um, caustic humor about him. And, of course, you know, He's he's not he's not liked by everybody. I like Dennis Miller, but in limited doses. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how these uh, Slammy Awards are going to play out. Of course, with that, the uh, TLC pay per view is coming up, and on paper it looks like some some good matches. You know, you got Randy Orton and Kofi Kingston uh, for the IC title. It's going to be John Morrison and Drew McIntyre. Uh, the ECW title ladder match is going to be Christian and Shelton Benjamin. Uh, the undisputed tag team titles are going to be decided in a TLC match with Chris Jericho and the Big Show versus D-Generation X. Uh, the WWE title will be defended in the tables match with John Cena versus uh, the guy who has uh, milk in, uh, for, for blood instead of blood, Sheamus, because he's pale as shit. And uh, The Undertaker is going to fight Batista in a chairs match. Now, off the bat, I can say this. Orton and Kingston, good match. Definitely great match from both of these guys. I see Orton taking it or Kingston just, um, you know, using some some shenanigans and winning. Uh, Morrison and McIntyre. McIntyre is not getting the belt, so Morrison's going to retain, I can tell you that. Uh, ECW title ladder match, I really would like Shelton Benjamin to get the shot. Um, you know, he's paid his dues. He's athletic. His mic work is a little suspect, but you know what? By having him champion, you can let him, you know, cut promos and work on his mic skills. And not only that, but it adds a new dynamic to ECW, which, you know, is on its way out based on what we discussed last week. Um, The undisputed tag team title TLC match. Holy shit, that's a long title. Um, DX has never won the tag team title, so get there. It's a foregone conclusion that DX is going to get the belts. Not only that, but of course, that's going to be a ratings boost to every program they're on because, you know, the undisputed tag team champions can compete on any of the shows. So, of course, this is going to be a little bit of a ratings boost for WWE in certain lagging areas. Uh, The tables match, I really know in my heart of hearts that John Cena is going to win the shit, but there's a part of me that thinks that Sheamus might win, and then they'll cash in a little bit of a rematch because he obviously has the WWE machine behind him in terms of Triple H and Shawn Michaels promoting uh, Sheamus behind the scenes and saying that, you know, he's, uh, he's ready and he's ready for the big spot. I personally think that I, I really would like to see him in a more long-term program. I think it's too soon to put the belt on him. Um, odds are Cena will retain and they'll build on that feud and maybe throw a third wrestler into the mix, pro- probably Orton. We'll see how that goes. And, of course, the world title chairs match between The Undertaker and Batista. Um, A lot of the rumors are that The Undertaker is going to retain the belt until the Royal Rumble, at which point Batista will win and, you know, go into the other pay-per-views and possibly win the belt. Now, the validity of that, of course, like anything else on the Internet, is fucking shoddy. Um, But I definitely see The Undertaker keeping the belt. And that's how it's going to go down. We'll see what happens. I mean, the matches are good, but they're not good enough to make me want to spend 50 bucks. So that's going to close out the wrestling segment for this week. Um, I'm working on a couple of little things with some guests that are going to help uh, bring up the wrestling segment and uh, add a little spice to it. So definitely stay tuned in the coming weeks for that. Let's talk some games now, shall we? Of course, the first thing, and, and I'm 
just shocked that it boiled into the gaming segment, is our good old buddy Tiger Woods. Uh, Tiger Woods, if you haven't fucking watched every channel, of course, uh, crashed his car and allegedly got hurt. Personally, I think his wife beat his ass. Then, after that, all these chicks started coming out of the woodwork that Tiger Woods had sex with. I think they're at 12 now. Nonetheless, of course, it comes to the attention that EA Sports was going to be mentioned. And they said, in regards to Tiger Woods' you know, uh, golf game on EA, that our strong relationship with Tiger for more than a decade remains unchanged. We respect Tiger's privacy, we wish him a fast recovery, and we look forward to seeing him back on the golf course. You know, that was the nice EAPC answer. And, you know, I don't want to go into the Tiger Woods thing because that's just not something I really want to talk about on the show, but I will say this. The guy went, he was married to a woman that, for all intents and purposes, is a 10. You know, she's really good looking, whatever. Then he goes, and he just goes and just fucks around with all these other chicks. You know, because he can, because he's got money. The only thing I really would like to add to that is that if you have a shitload of money and you are not prepared to commit to one person, don't get married. Because guess what? You're guaranteeing that person 50% of your money or more if you decide to go out and do some dirt. So way to go, Tiger Woods. Not only did you make your wife look like an idiot, you know, but you, you know, hurt your career for the moment and... You know, you may lose some sponsors. You know, there's rumors already that Gatorade's going to phase out the uh, Tiger Woods uh, Gatorade drink. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping he can bounce back from it, but, dude, you fucking put yourself out there, and you don't know how to creep. So we'll leave it at that. Um, for those of you that have gone on to the Xbox Live Marketplace recently, you will notice that you can now buy pets. For 240 Microsoft points, Microsoft will continue to take away your money by allowing you to buy a large dog, a pug dog, a dog in a bag, a cat, a Siamese cat, a long-haired cat, a goldfish, a guinea pig, a pony, and a monkey. So, for all intents and purposes, you get to buy a virtual pet for yourself for 240 Microsoft points. It is ridiculous. Let me tell you, pets should be something that you can get for fucking free. You mean to tell me that I got to lay out 240 points for a cat? Are you fucking serious? Why not do something cool? Like, yo, you can have like a pet dragon, you know, or a giant snake, or something like that, or even something like, you know, I mean, they did um, something promoting Final Fantasy where you can have a chocobo as a pet. I mean, you can own a regular bird or a regular snake, but why not go that extra, that extra step and, you know, do something, do something a little unique, so a little, something a little different. I mean, yeah, you can get the, you know, the chocobo, but... Really, 240 points for fucking pets? It's absurd. It is really fucking absurd. That And it was funny, too, because I almost got caught up. I'm like, ah, I can get a fucking a dog or a cat or whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. That should be something that's a fucking feature for your, uh, for your avatar when you create it. Oh, do you have any pets? Here, here's one. You really, you really want people to pay 240 points for that shit? It's fucking absurd. Now, here's uh, here's something that was brought to my attention, which I mentioned that um, in in the teaser for tonight, and that's the fact of um, difficulty being adjusted in video games by developers remotely. 
Um, I was speaking with Josh, you know, one of my one of my regular callers and, you know, one of my friends, and he brought to my attention something that's going on with iPhone games where developers are monitoring people's gameplay, and if you're having difficulty passing a certain level in the game, the developer, you know, remotely will adjust the difficulty of the game for you to continue playing. This, of course, adds enjoyment and replay value to the game, but, of course, allows the developers you know, an extra hand in your pocket. I personally am not a fan of this at all. I think that, you know, one of the reasons that video games are so prevalent with our generation is because other, besides being a form of enjoyment, they sharpen your mind, they sharpen your hand and eye coordination, they make you think. Yeah, you know, to some people they will be considered, you know, brain-rotting uh, entertainment. But you have to look at the big picture. Um, you look at a game like, you look at a system like the Wii, their whole dynamic is based on uh, physical motion. You know, it's a technology that's, you know, very advanced, as primitive as, as primitive as the delivery is, you know, given the Miis and things like that. The execution, of course, is, is really very advanced. You know, you look at Wii Fit. You know, once again, games being used for something other than enjoyment, but also as an exercise tool, as something that will help um, gamers not only be physically fit, but, you know, have good coordination. And it really bothers me that the developers are just sticking their hands in and deciding, eh, let's make it a little easier so little Billy can advance. This continues to lend validity to the, to the pussification of America that I talk about often, where, you know, everything has to be fair play and every kid has to play, in, in, you know, in Little League and shit of that nature. The fact of the matter is, when you play a game... There's three ways to go about it. You play the game and you beat it. You play the game, you get stuck at a level, you either step back for a little bit, come back and beat it, or, you know, you go online and you get an FAQ and you pass the, you pass the board and keep it moving, or uh, you stop playing the game and get rid of it. That's really it. The fact that they're, that they're going to this great of a length to make people want to, you know, continue playing a game is fucking absurd. But... You know, we'll see what happens. I think personally that if this is the trend with iPhone games, I see it boiling over into consoles, and I don't like that at all. You know, especially, it, it's kind of already in there with uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, especially, you know, in some respects where if you get killed a lot, you know, the difficulty level gets adjusted and you get a couple of, uh, you know, you get a couple of little extras to help even the playing field. And you know what? I say, fuck that. If you signed on to play the game and you're getting your ass handed to you, you either practice and get better, or you don't fucking play. I think it's, it's absurd. It really is a stupid, stupid thing that should be, you know, it should just let people, you know, use their, their brains, you know, to, to advance forward. But, I, you know, it's like anything else. Everybody wants fair play. Nah, nah, nah. This, that, and the third. It looks like we got our first uh, caller of the evening. Let's see who it is. Yo, what's up, man? Paul, you're on the air. Yo. Hey. It's Ant. Hey, Ant, what's going on? Uh, not much. Um, yeah, speaking of all this difficulty crap and how, you know, games are turning into casual fag games now, I, I got to just put my, my two cents in there. Um, yeah, you were saying that it's going to start leaking into consoles and it's already doing it with, with uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Well, it's already doing it with, with New Super Mario Brothers for Wii. Because they have that that feature where it can give you cheats, you know, like you can unlock cheats and stuff. Yeah, a lot of games do that. But you can also 
um, unlock guides in the game to tell you how to beat certain segments. And Nintendo uh-huh. already, I didn't know that. Yeah, Nintendo's already been talking about implementing this uh, feature. They have a patent for it now, to where you can go into a, a menu for most of their, their new games in the next couple of years, and it'll play the, the level for you. It'll actually have the computer that like take over with AI and beat the level for you until you're ready to play again. So like that is the most fucking stupidest idea I've ever yeah, heard. Just, just look, just look, look up Operation Kind, because that's a, that's a, what they were codenaming it. Because all that pretty much is, because oh either it'll tell you how to beat it or it'll beat it for you. It's fucking that's Operation Cock Monkey. That's what it is. Look, yeah, you buy a game. And, and, and you're a, gr- a great example of this. You know, you own a PS3, you pick up a game, you play the game a little bit, and eh, the game's too difficult. What do you do for a little bit? Do you take a timeout, or do you get an FAQ, or do you just give up? Like, like what's your course of action when, when you're in a situation like that? Well, personally, with me, when it comes to, like, new games and stuff, I'll play for a little bit until I get frustrated. I'll put it down... And then I'll try again maybe like a week or two, and if I can't be after after that long of a break, I'll go to a fact. And if I get if I get stuck again after the fact, then I'm, I just put it down and don't play it again. There you go. But and you know, how would you how would you feel how would you feel if you found out that you know a developer piped into your system and decided, hey, let's help good old Ant out and make it a little easier for him? I don't you feel that you're being out of my control? Like I don't. I like that that level of control where I can turn difficulty up or down if I wanted to. Not that they would do it for me because they see that I'm fucking up. Yeah, and you know it's it's disturbing because you know it it's gonna add you know playability because it'll allow you to just you know continue playing the game and not quit. Or in some cases, it it's all about fucking revenue. The fact is, um, they figure, oh, you're playing the game. If you keep playing it, you might buy some downloadable content for it. Or because they want the people to beat the games faster, you so you can buy new ones. Pretty much, yeah. Because because the way they're doing it now is like um, someone on on the forums of MySpace, they they didn't actually say it, but I coined the term today. Is just fast food gaming. You just like they, they'll they'll put a game out, they'll expect you to beat it within like a year, and they'll have another game out within the next year. So they're popping out like four or five games in like three four years because they they think people are already beating their games that fast. And yeah, it's, it's, it's absurd. The what trend is that they'll put a tacked-on single-player mode, which is not them, I'm just saying they, because it's in general, but they'll, they'll put on a tacked-on single-player mode, and their multiplayer will be the main focus for a lot, of, a lot of games recently. So they'll see people going on multiplayer, and they'll think, oh, these people already beat single-player, because that's the, just the general trend. You play single-player, you get used to it, and you get to multiplayer. So they all have, like, the developers are getting the idea now that people are beating their single-players too fast, so they make new games faster. Yeah, it's, it's it's ridiculous. I I think I think that this, um, you know, I I I looked at a little blurb about what you were saying with Nintendo, and you know, it, it I I see Nintendo doing it, and you know what? I, I'll give them a little inch of credit, and it's like this: if the Wii is ge- is is geared towards younger children, which it's not, because the gaming audience is diverse. If it were geared to younger children, ages five, six, and seven, you know, and you wanted to add a little, a little assist to help them beget better gamers. That's fine. No, no harm in that because you're catering to that demographic. But when you have a gaming demographic that's diverse from kids ages six to uh, you know senior citizens fucking age seventy, 
there's there's really no need for that type of assistance. I think that if you're good enough to play the game, you're either good enough to play the game all the way through, or you're good enough to say to yourself, you know what, I can't fucking do this. It, it happens. It, you, you know, there's a time when you've got to step away, and, and you know what, even that, you know, the brain gets the process, and you might come back, the AI might be a little different, you know, just in terms of just normal gameplay, and you might be able to beat the game without any assistance. I think that, you know, the fact that companies are going to this, to this great length to just continue to fucking castrate our pockets of money is disgusting. It's like, look, man, you know, if I want to play a game six months, let me enjoy the fucking game for six months, you know? Where the fuck do you get off that I have to go and beat this game when you fucking feel like it? It's like, you fucks, I gave you my money. Leave me the fuck alone. Take your hand out of my pocket. Pretty much it. And, like, I was just thinking about while you were saying all that. I was thinking about this. And, like, I don't know if there's any other games that do this, but Call of Duty Modern Warfare, well, the first one anyway, like, when you get into that first training mission, it, it ranks on it ranks you on how your performance is, and then it, then it tells you what difficulty level you should be on because it, it, it just it rates you that way. I think that's how most games should be now, is it looks at, like how you beat the first level, and if you did it with a good enough score, then, you, then you, you're good enough to go in hard mode or get to stay on easy mode. Whatever, like I think that's when when the game should choose for you what your difficulty is based on the first level or the first two levels, not when when yeah. you're messing up towards like the last level and they decide okay let's change it on you make it easier because we think we want you to beat it and get it over with. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they continue to to you know hold our little hand while we cross the street or if they let us go and play in traffic like we're supposed to. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, let's go to a different conversation. I'll just sit here and listen. You got it, brother. Thanks for the call. All right. You're a mean one, Mr. Slick. <laughs> What's up, man? What's going on, sir? Uh, more ways for the gaming community to just basically... Roll over and die. <laughs> or... or Pull, pull up Brian, you know, one of our, one of our members of the chat whose initials are F-M-I-T-A-P, which most of the farmers know what that means. Right. Um, anyway, I don't see why they're interfering with, um, you know, gamers who basically kind of suck. Because it's already been, a, the, the issue's already been addressed without actually developers actively putting their hand into the difficulty setting. You take a, a couple of games that I played recently. You take God of War, Explosion Man, Army of Two. You take Army of Two, which forces you to play on either the easy level or the normal level. You have to beat it on one of those levels to get the hard level. You take God of War, Explosion Man, which God of War you also got to beat on one of the other. You got to beat on normal to get the hard level. But if you're doing terribly. Both of those games will stop and offer you an easier mode. So you can decide, okay, I do suck. I need to play on the easier level. Or I'm going to continue to get my ass whipped until I stop getting my ass whipped. And that's go. the way it should be. I mean... But you, but you know what? It, it, the, way you, the way you looked at it, and, and you know, I, I'm going to reference how you opened up your call with, the, with, the, uh, with catering to, to, to sucky gamers. And you know what? It, it, it's it's a good way it's a good play on it, but you know what it is? Developers don't like that term. They don't like sucky gamer. You want to know why? Because sucky gamer is only going to buy the safe titles, 
the titles that they know that they can play religiously, and you know they won't they won't diversify and play other games. And you know what it is? I really want to break it down like this: there really aren't sucky gamers. There's guys that get guys and girls that get it off the bat. Then there's those that, you know, it's a slow burn, and they improve through practice or they improve through, you know, just, just becoming students of the game. The problem is that I don't personally like the fact that some shit dick in another company is telling me when I should be playing at a harder level or when I should be playing at an easier level. You're supposed to let me decide that because I'm the consumer and my money's what influences my, you, you know, how the game does. If I feel like paying 60 bucks and playing that game on fucking super easy till my eyes bleed, guess what? You got my $60. That's where it should end. It shouldn't be, here's my $60, I'm going to follow you home, pat you on the back, and tell you, oh, it's okay, little guy, that you died. You know, fuck you. You know, where do you, at which point do, you know, the companies and the developers take their hands away and go, you know what? This is the game we put out. Yeah, it's not easy, but guess what? You either continue playing it and get good, or you don't. You know, if you look at Demon Souls, which you play religiously, the game is hard as shit. Even experienced gamers tell me the game is hard as shit. Same thing with Dragon Age. But I don't. You know, w would you feel you know cheated that the company said, you know what, the game's a little too hard. Let's make it easy for Slick. Don't you think that you should be the one that makes that decision and not some asshole across the country that decides that it's too hard for you? It's funny you mentioned Demon's Souls because I'm going to answer your question, but back on Halloween, they did the exact opposite. They said, oh, the game's too hard? Let's make it harder. There you go. But you <laughs> know what? You can't play it. Exactly. Because they actually up the reward system as well. But, yeah, I mean... I'd be pissed off if, if you took a game like that and made it easier for me. Because the fact that I actually bothered to buy it, knowing that I'm going to get my ass handed to me, the fact that I have a game like God of War where you have God, the, the God-level difficulty, where you can literally die on the first board from the first two enemies, which is like rats whipping your ass. I mean, I like, I like that difficulty once in a while. You need that. You know what it is? It, it, it establishes you as a gamer. And the fact is that, you know, one of the things that make you good, and that's the thing, people tend to forget that, yes, games are a form of entertainment, but they involve work. They make your brain work. You know, they, they, they put you in at a disadvantage mentally. And, of course, to make you a better gamer, you're supposed to overcome that disadvantage, whatever it may be, with your brain, not with some fuck somewhere pressing a button that says, okay, now you can pass. No, fuck you. Stay wherever the hell you are, make more games for me, and that's it. I don't need you to hold my fucking hand. I don't need you to reassure me that it's okay, that I suck, quote-unquote. I need you to keep putting out quality games so I can keep giving you my quality money. It's, it's that simple. It, is that you know, it, 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 it really doesn't, it doesn't get any more complex than that. And I hate the fact that, 
you know, big game companies and, and, you know, analysts and all this shit sit there and they try and pipe you this bullshit. Oh, well, you have to understand that it's all about fair play and we want to make sure that everybody gets to enjoy the experience. No, fuck everybody. You want to know why? Because you, you're either in the game all in or you're a casual gamer. That's how it's broken down. Hardcore gamers, casual gamers, and, you know, and middle of the road. You know, in More terms of being hardcore for one game or, you know, casual for another. Like, I'm a, you know, I'm a casual first-person shooter player. I'm not religiously online. Why? Because since I don't play the shit that much, I know I'm getting my ass killed. And at that point, I'm going to get frustrated and be like, you know what, fuck this. So rather than put myself through the aggravation, me personally made the conscious decision, hey, I'll just play the campaigns and maybe once in a while I'll jump into multiplayer. It's that simple. I don't need nobody to make that decision for me. Going off on, on um, <clears throat> what you said, the, the developers themselves tell us that we don't need them to tell, tell us this shit because if you think about it, there's the fact that every single game except for like maybe one out of a hundred has difficulty settings. And there's the fact that when you go online, either the instruction booklet, the front or back of the, the actual game box, or the actual screen says gameplay may change during online or game experience may not be the same in online play, some shit like that, or online play not rated, anything like that. They, they let you know that there's differences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's, you know, I, I don't like the fact that some guy's making that decision for me. But, you know, we'll see how it plays out. All right, man. I'm going right, to get back into the news. I might call back later. You got it, sir. Thanks. All right, later. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, what's going on, Rich? What's going on? And not much. So, Mally. Hey, what do you got? So, I got to agree with you guys. I mean, this is bullshit. I mean... Who the fuck are they to tell us, like, going, hey, you need to go on to an easier, uh, here, let's make this easy for you, on their hand. I mean, it's no better than using a fucking game shark or something, for fuck's sake. Yeah, it's like, you know, do, you know, do you think, honestly, that your relationship with the developer, or whatever, should end when you walk out of the store? You know, you made a conscious decision to support the developer by walking into the store and going to the rep, you know, whoever in whatever store, and be like, here's my money. That's my, that's my, that's my golden ticket to support this developer or this company. I'm going to go home now with my game and play it as best as I can. You know, why, why, do you need, why do you need to take the... Why is it that the game developers are like the fucking Verizon network following you home? Because that's what it is. They're basically playing it like, Here's a, that we're going to follow you home and help you be a better gamer. So you should be entitled to be a better gamer yourself. You don't need help. So, I mean, if, if they want to, like, offer help, open up a fucking tip line or something like that. Like, um, remember way back when, when Final Fantasy IX had that little, you know, online strategy guide or some shit like that, like a fact or something? Yes, I do remember, remember that. Stuck? Have it like that. Yep. Don't be changing, uh, changing difficulty or anything like that because, well, that just takes away from the game in general. Yeah, I do not like that. I don't like how they how how like I said they they just follow you they they follow you home and tell you okay, we'll help you, little guy. It's 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 absurd, man. It takes away from from the competitiveness and the will to improve with gaming. 
Yeah, I mean, me personally, I'd rather play a game that, you know, makes me, you know, halfway tempted to throw the controller at the screen, say, you know, original Ninja Gaiden on Xbox. Right, then definitely, have, like, yeah, I gotta agree. I mean, then have a game where you're, like, going, man, what's going on? Then, like, whenever you, you know, continue, you're, like, going, does it mirror? Wow, this got really easy. Here now? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, what the fuck? I mean, if I wanted to help, I'd call over one of my buddies or, you know, go online and talk to a few friends and be like going, hey, man, can you tell me what's going on? I don't need the developer being acting like one of my, you know, best buds going, hey, man, here you go. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. And like I said, it's, it's bleeding over. You know, Ant brought a good point with Mario. And you know what it is? Mm-hmm. With Mario, you know, kid-friendly, yeah, casual gaming audience, you know, maybe, maybe, which is absurd, maybe there's one or two people out there that have never played Mario, which I fucking doubt, but God knows. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the start of a trend that's very disturbing. Yeah, I mean, what developers really need to do, in my opinion, need to make games harder, longer, like, you know, back how they were back in the day before they were like going, well, let's just focus on just online. Not everyone yep. likes online douchebag. You know? Yeah, it's true. You're right. I mean, you know, the single-player campaign in a lot of games, and sometimes in most cases, leaves a lot to be desired because they focus so much attention on the online. And then the good single-player games end up having some bullshit online created just to generate hits on servers for Microsoft or for Sony. Oh, I agree. how it plays out, my friend. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's going to be something I think I'm going to be arguing and yelling about for a while. I'm pretty much going to be bitching about it too, bro, so don't feel bad. There you go. All right, man. But Thanks for the call. No problem. Later on. Later on. All right, now that the old, uh, the old rage juices are flowing... Uh, Nintendo Power has confirmed that Capcom is working on Mega Man 10 for the WiiWare channel. The game is expected out early next year. It's going to use a similar 8-bit style to Mega Man 9. Um, One of the new enemies will be a character called Sheet Man. Uh, uh, Hopefully, Mega Man will defeat him by raping him and then making him a sweater. But, nonetheless, there is going to be a boss called Sheet Man. Mega Man's also not going to be the only playable character. He will be joined by Proto Man, as well as a third character that's being kept secret. So, we're going to find out sooner rather than later uh, if the difficulty from Mega Man 9 is going to translate into Mega Man 10, because I know plenty of people that uh, have broken a controller or two playing Mega Man 9. So, we'll see how that plays out. Um, EA Sports... Um, well, EA Sports CEO John Rich—wow, R- this guy's name is awful. John Richitello uh, said that the uh, Wii console can capture some PlayStation 2 market share if they drop to $149.99. I mean, there, there's a there's a part of me that agrees because it's amazing how much market share the PlayStation 2 has, but. On the same token, you know, you don't want to price yourself out of the game too much. I mean, 199 is decent. You know, you can compete with the big guys, and it kind of levels the playing field. 149 will give you a slight sales boost, I feel. But, you know, there has to be a longer shelf life on the Wii to go 149, just because it seems like it would be a desperation move. I think 199 is a good sweet spot right now, and it should be one of those things where the... Uh, you know, give it another year and then drop it to 149 and see how it goes. 
Um, the MPD numbers have come in, and uh, I love talking about the MPD numbers on the show because it's amazing how the ship breaks down. First off, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 on the 360 is your top-selling uh, game for the month of November with 420 million copies. Second, Modern Warfare 2 for the PS3, 1.9 million copies. This continues to prove that the online component is the major selling point for Call of Duty. I mean, yeah, the game itself is solid, but it's the fact that you you know people are more attracted to the 360 because of the online component, which is unfortunate because Sony has a, a decent online system, but, you know, the 360 is just, just kicking their ass. You know what it is? That you sell 420 million copies of a game and the same game on another console only sells 1.9? It's ridiculous. It's, uh, it's really, really um, mind-blowing, the fact that, that a game of, of this magnitude just... There's such a huge, huge, huge dis discrepancy between both versions. But, you know, like anything else, the 360 online component definitely is going to help move Modern Warfare into the record books. Uh, number three on the MPD list was the new Super Mario Brothers has sold 1.4 million copies. Assassin's Creed 2, which has been getting great reviews, sold 795,000. Left 4 Dead 2 sold 720,000. Wii Sports Resort sold 720,000 tied with Left 4 Dead 2. Wii Fit Plus, you know, it's fucking 20 bucks. Of course it's going to sell. Sold 679,000 you know, 679, copies. Assassin's Creed 2 on the PS3 sold 448. Dragon Age Origins sold 362,000. And oh, oh, totally random, Mario Kart with the wheel for the Wii sold 315,000, which is surprisingly... Because I think it's surprising, but not all, at all shocking. Because, you know, a lot of people are buying the Wii, and it's the holidays, and you got family over, and one of the best multiplayer games out is Mario Kart. So, you know, I'm not shocked in the least that so, much, uh, so many copies of it have sold. In terms of consoles, Nintendo, of course, guns blazing dominated uh, video game sales with the DS and the Wii, selling more than 296 million units combined for the month of November. Uh, the 360 and the PS3 are third and fourth, respectively. Now, it's crazy because the hardware numbers, here's the total breakdown. The DS sold, uh, you know, 1,700,000 units. The Wii sold 1,260,000 units. Xbox 360 sold 819,500 units. The PlayStation 3 sold 710,400. The PSP, um, I really would like to know if it was a combination of the PSP Go and the standard PSP or if it was just the standard PSP. They sold 293,000 units. And of course, rounding it out, the PlayStation 2 continues to just not fucking die and it sold 203,100 uh, consoles. So the total hardware sales for the month of November was 1.5 billion, which is, and you, won't, you guys won't even believe this shit, that's a 13.4% drop from November of 2008 when all three consoles were considered expensive. That is, that's when you know that the economy is really just fucking shit up. But on the same token, these consoles were all expensive last year. And, and, and the fact that there's such a, a, a huge double-digit drop 
shows that, you know, people are being more cautious in terms of their expenditures, in terms of, oh, yeah, let me go buy a Wii, a PS3, and a 360. Now people are like, eh, if I got a PS3, I'll wait a little bit, maybe I'll get a 360, or nine times out of ten, they get a Wii. Every, most of the people that I know that own one of the major consoles, usually their secondary console is the Wii, just because price and enjoyability are two of the main factors. The uh, MPD numbers are always fun just because, for me, it shows that, you know, the real, the real consumers are out there pushing the titles that they want to see successful. You know, it's ridiculous because the, um, the MPD groups, Anita Frazier said the following regarding the 13.4% drop. While there's been a lot of focus on Wii sales as compared to last year, the system was still the best-selling console system by a margin of 54%. At this, at this same point in the PS2 life cycle, the PS2 was down in unit sales by 23% from the previous year. But, a history, but as history has shown, it continues to have a great deal of life left in it. So focusing on a comparison to Wii's stellar 2008 performance masked the reality of just how well the system is selling. It's true. It's like the, the Wii sold 1,260,000 units. And the PlayStation 2, if it didn't exist, that 203,000 uh, units would be spread apart, you know, across all these other systems. She went on to state that the PS3 realized the greatest increase over last year's November sales and had its third best month in unit sales ever, coming in just under December's 07 and 08 numbers. Now, the funny thing with that is that the PlayStation 3, of course, is being uh, spearheaded by the price drop. It, it's unfortunate that they can't monopolize the PlayStation 2 market share and phase it out given the fact that they removed the backwards compatibility. I think that, in, you know, for all intents and purposes, you're looking at a console that, while it does have a long shelf life, Sony has to really sit down and reevaluate their situation because, you know, you have so much um, software out there for the PlayStation 2 still that um, it, can, it can be better pushed into the PS3, those numbers. But... We'll see what happens. I think that Ant has the hand up, or he may have hit one by mistake, but let's have a look. Yeah, Ant, what's up? Yeah, I, I hit one back when we were still talking about difficulty settings and, uh, before the MPD, so I don't know if you want to keep me on. Yeah, um, yeah. well, I'm going to close out the gaming segment. Give me your uh, final thoughts. Oh, well, I'm just going to go back to difficulty settings and stuff. I'm not going to talk about the whole changing changing remotely thing, but I was, I was thinking about it a lot, and I've been... Hacking my DS and Wii and adding all kinds of like emulated SNES and Genesis games and going back and playing stuff. And I, I just thought about it. Some of Disney's games were the hardest games that I can remember right now. Like I've been playing Aladdin and Lion King and Jesus freaking Christ is it tearing my ass apart right now. And I'm freaking 23. I remember beating those games when I was little and now going back to it, I've been so spoiled and neutered by, by like modern casual games and stuff. Even like difficult online games for like today's age. Have, are just easy enough to where I can't play the original classics anymore. Like, Aladdin and Lion King are beating my ass. That's making me, like, cry almost because those are Disney games. So what the hell? Like, we've become so spoiled by, by how far the difficulty settings have dropped just in general. Uh, I know a lot, a lot of, some of us can go back to classic games and just beat them with their, their eyes closed, hands tied behind their back and playing with their dicks, but I can't do it that way. It is true. I mean, it's happening. It's happening a lot now. Where the, and it's true. I, I've realized playing more console games now. I'm beating a lot more games now that I'm older 
than when I was younger and had more time to play them. Because it, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic because you've got to look at it like you're younger. All you do is go to school, come home, have dinner, do your homework, plop yourself in front of the TV and play a game. And usually it would take you weeks, sometimes months, to beat one or two games. Now it's like, oh, beat this game in a week. Oh, beat this other game in, in, in three days. It's like, you know, the, the, the rationale that you bring up in terms of um, the difficulty levels is, is definitely prevalent, especially nowadays. The, you know, you, I'm blasting through games. Like, I remember I picked up Wolverine for the uh, PlayStation 3 on a Tuesday, and by Saturday I was done with it. I'm like, what the hell? And I, I had gone through the game, and mind you, it was like on normal. And, you know, I'm one of those people, they play adventure games, you beat it, it's like, you know, there's no residual value in beating it on harder unless it's like a special ending, you know? But I understand. Yeah, that's like, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's, you brought up how you get easy and normal mode, and then you unlock, well, that's actually Slip brought up, and then you unlock hard mode and stuff, and... I don't see the point. Like this, most games where you go unlock hard mode, you don't get much besides like a trophy or an achievement, and that even in, most, in some cases you don't get that. You just get the satisfaction that you beat it on hard mode. So like, why can't they just have that there for the beginning so you can choose to, to play hard mode? Like, who's going to go back and play hard mode unless there's something has some kind of reward to it? Right. Unless there, unless there's some sort of redeeming factor. I really don't think that, you know, playing through the game again to unlock a harder mode is really productive in my eyes, especially if there's no, you know, special ending, special costume. Like, if there's no, there's no, like, real hardcore incentive other than an achievement or, you know, a trophy, it's just like, I beat the game, I'm done. You know, like, that's the shit with me, you know, especially with a lot, that's why I try not to buy too many adventure games, because after you beat them, it's like, all right, I spent 60 bucks, I banged out the game in a week, now what? So, you know, it is true. The difficulty levels have been um, very skewed um, in the last, I'd say, the last 10 years. Yeah, and, like, you, you just brought up different endings, and I was making a about Metroid Prime. I remember when I, like, I played Metroid Prime 1, and I beat that with 76% completion, so I got the normal ending. And I found out that if you get 100% completion, which required all scans, everything scanned, every, everything beaten, then you get the, the, the perfect ending, which is, like, better. And, that, and then I, I went and played Metroid Prime 3 Corruption, and I got 100% completion without even scanning most of the stuff. And I'm like, how did I get 100% completion? There's still stuff I didn't do. So like, wow. I don't understand how that happened. And I, like, even, even Alex, he did the same thing. He had 100% completion, and we both played the same way. So it's like... That's crazy. Like, difficulty really is steepening down, even like in, in the last like three, four years. It's it's unfortunate, man. It really is. And, you know, especially with this thing going on, you know, with these developers, I think we're going to see games get a lot easier. And, um, you know, was the, one of the guys said, you know, it's going to be one of the, like a fast food game. You know, you're going to bang in and out real quick. You know, you're going to part with $60 super quick, and it's going to be more often than you'd like. That's exactly the point. Yeah, and, and then people will complain about Leopard Dead 2 saying that it came out too soon and that, like, it was, it's a fast food game. Yeah, true. I can agree with that. And, and like, that's, they're getting the EA effect. Make a new Madden game every year. It's, like, it's getting ridiculous. And, like, I know nobody's listening to us, and other developers are going to care what we say, but still, like, if, if there's some way we can go out there and say, you know what, give us hard games again. Like, go, go no. talk to Disney. Ask Disney how they did it back in, like, 1996. 
That's right. Well, yeah, those those Disney games. I remember. I remember playing The Lion King. I remember playing Aladdin. I was like, wow, this, this is a, a tough fucking game for a Disney game. And but that's what happens though, because back then there was um there there was less emphasis on on pretty graphics and more emphasis on engaging gameplay. And I think that's one of the things that has kind of changed the scope of gaming um, in the last I, I'd say the last ten years. You know, it's one of, when you played Sonic and Mario. You played them for enjoyment. Yeah, you played them to beat the games, but there was an enjoyment that went with it that, you know, there was no other incentive than to beat the game. Now it's like, oh, I've got to get these achievements. I've got to get these trophies. Like, there's an article I read, and, I, and I'm going to go into it next week, hopefully, if I can get the girl on, where this girl, she's a married woman, actually. All she does is play games for achievements. From the worst games ever to the highest games ever, she plays them all for achievements. And she collaborates with people to get, you know, multiplayer achievements. Like she'll say, um, say there's a game where you need an achievement where 50 people have to be playing at once. She'll call 50 people together, they all collaborate, and they all get the achievement. Isn't that sick? Like, where's the enjoyment in playing the game? There is none, because that's what it's become. It's become the incentive is, you know, achievements and boasting that you have a high gamer score instead of just the overall enjoyment of just beating a game. Yeah, I can see there being an enjoyment in getting those achievements because you get that, that certain, like, ping of pride as soon as the achievement pops up. But then it's like, after a while, if you're trying to get all of them, it takes so long that you're just really, like, grinding the rails at that point. You're just kind of, like, just getting bored with it. Like, I, I've done that before. I tried getting a platinum, not a platinum trailer, I tried getting all 1,000 Microsoft points from one game, and I got so bored that I just ended up stopping by, by, by like, 620. I was like, I can't do this anymore. This game's getting too boring. I know everything about this game. Let me move on. That's how it goes, my friend. Yep. That's all really right. all I have to say on the matter, though, so just uh, move on. All right, brother. Thanks for your call. All right, man. Later. All right, before we go into the movie segment and take a call, I'm going to take a little commercial break, and I will be back in 30 seconds. You know those shows where they play video game music? And they laugh in like really high voices, like. <laughs> well, you won't listen to that on our show, because uh, we don't have the budget for that kind of thing. We're broke as hell, and uh, nobody really cares that much to laugh that hard. So, um, if you're looking for a show like that, that has horrible audio quality and uh, void of fake laughter, Video Game News Radio, 11 p.m. Tuesday nights. On all games. All right, I'm back. Let's get into some movie news. I believe uh, Slick is calling back. Slick, what do you got, my friend? Uh, I had called on uh, video games, but if you want to start the news, I can hold on. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. That way we could just wrap up the topic. I thought Ant would be the last one, but what do you got, my friend? What do you have to uh, share with us? Uh, you're talking about achievements and everything and how it may be changing the whole way that games are played. I mean, I personally would call myself an achievement whore, but not to the level that some people I know are. Like, I I'm do more know people... I'm you saw the article I sent you. Yeah. I know you some see, people see how have... that is? Yeah. There, there are a few articles touching on achievements and trophies and everything. I mean... Like I said, the game Infamous was the first one I got a platinum trophy on, but I actually had to 
played through the, the game twice to get it, and I enjoyed the two playthroughs. I I don't play games like Avatar or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where you can get all the achievements in 20 minutes. Like, I still choose games that have some semblance of challenge to them. And, um games that I can actually enjoy and play all the way through without saying, well, fuck this. You you mentioned also, like, the emphasis on engaging gameplay versus graphics and not going into all the sequels, but the original Katamari Damacy was like a PlayStation 2 classic. It had really, really simple graphics, but the game was really, really fun and it had a decent amount of playtime involved in it, and it was replayable. And that games was. like that, even though it's it's in an age where everybody's focusing on achievements and stuff like that, games like that aren't completely dead. I mean, you have games like Shadow Complex, where Ant was talking about Metroid, and Shadow Complex is called a big Metroid clone, but it's still a really, really good game that's on par with a lot of these full price, full price big production titles, and it was what sixteen dollars or something to buy. Yeah, pretty much. But, but that's the thing: the, the the engaging gameplay is there, but they're really selective on when they want to apply that. At the end of the day, they try to sell you on pretty graphics, an awesome commercial, and you know, multiplayer. It's all about multiplayer. And, they, you know, you lose sight of the fact that there are games that are just meant to be enjoyed in, its, in their truest form. You know, when, when you played, and, and here's a great example, when you played Super Mario 1, and you beat Super Mario 1, and you found out, oh, shit, there's going to be a Super Mario 2, you were excited from day one for Super Mario 2. When you played it, there was an enjoyment and, and a newfound enthusiasm for a character that you had already become acquainted with. And you'd play Super Mario 2, and that would lead on to the success of multiple Mario titles. Now, it seems that, you know, the games have to be, you know, wow, that dude looks so real, or wow, that battle damage is so real, or oh shit, the AI is insane. You know, it's not the meat and potatoes of the game anymore, the engaging storyline. Now, you know, they go with with all these extra add-ons to make the games um, sellable. Which, which is fine, you know, depending, but it seems to be way too much of a trend as of late, and I think that in some respects it's really putting a blemish on gaming because it's becoming more about achievements and multiplayer instead of, you know, engaging storylines and, you know, great, great lovable characters that will help move franchises forward. With that, I think the real problem is it goes back to what you said earlier, that maybe because they're making games too easy, the people are beating games too quickly, and they have to keep pumping out games. Like we said, the good games are there, but the good games involve the developers taking their time. Because honestly, when you have a Blu-ray disc, you have a PlayStation 3, even if you have a 360 that doesn't have all the capacity and everything, all you have to do is take your time with everything. Nothing has to suffer. The graphics don't have to suffer. They can be as flashy as ever. 
The story doesn't have to suffer. The gameplay doesn't have to suffer. The AI doesn't have to suffer. All of that can be there. And there are plenty of games that came out this year that prove that. Oh, yeah, of course, but that's what happens. They they sometimes tend to lose they tend to lose sight of that. Like, like it's true, you, you bring up a, a good point that there are titles that they'll come out and they'll focus on gameplay, but you know what it is? For every, for every one title that does that, there's five titles that focus on multiplayer, 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 and achievements. And you lose sight of that, that engaging storyline. You know, Shadow Complex was a great game that was the most simplistic game, but also the one that engaged you more because it was something new. It was something fresh because the storyline was so engaging. You go back to a game like Explosion Man, unique, um, perfectly executed, engaging storyline, and just overall fun. And that's what happens. There's a fine line between, you know, games that are made for profit and games that people are passionate about that the developers want to see made. You know, when we had the guys from Darksiders on the show, um, those guys were passionate. They were passionate about the fact that, you know, this was a game that they labored intensely over and they took the time to make sure that the storyline was engaging and the gameplay was, was crisp and fresh and new. And, you know, they said it. We took elements from classic games like Zelda. You know, they went that route. You know, and they borrowed a little bit of, of, of God of War. But they, they took it back to a, um, an inspiration that's timeless. You know, games like Zelda were games that, are, games that were engaging, that you'd play for a long time, because they, would, they, they captured you with their story more so than their gameplay. Because when you look at the original Zelda on Nintendo, you're like, wow, I played this shit. I, pay, I played 12 hours or 14 hours of this shit. You know, but at the end of the day, you realize that the storyline is what got you. And that's what we need more of. We need more, especially single-player games that are more engaging with stories. Because a lot of them are real cookie-cutter. It's like, oh, here's the guy. Oh, his girl gets kidnapped. You're going to go through all the stages to get the girl back. The end. You know, how, ma how many games do we play with that same tired formula? You know, one of the things I didn't like about GTA was, oh, here's this guy. Hey, man, how's it going? Oh, drive me here. You know how many fucking times in that game you have to hear drive me to this place or let's drive over here or drop me off there? You know, it's like, really? That's, that's the meat and potatoes of the storyline? Me playing fucking personal cab driver? That's the meat and potatoes of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, it is, but you know what it is? I hate to it's say a that, problem when it's. Uh, no, and you know what? You, you can love the game itself, but you've got to look at every game and realize that over the course of the Grand Theft Auto franchise, they've become less and less storyline-driven. I think one of the most storyline-driven GTA games was San Andreas and Vice City. GTA 4, you know, the storyline is there. You know, immigrant guy comes, he's trying to get a start, he gets dragged into the life, blah, blah, blah. But at the end, it's like, you killed my cousin, now I kill you. Nice spoiler there, guy. Sorry, it happened. I'm, I'm, I'm really. I'm, if you, if nobody's figured that shit the fuck out already since the game's been out, then they need to f fucking change the channel. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's legit. But think about it. It's like, you know, it, at the end of the day, it boils down to a revenge story, which we've played a thousand times over. It just has a couple of little, you know, nuts and bolts that differentiate it from everything else, from the average ninety-minute action movie. But you know what it is? It gets to a point where it's so repetitive, like. It's taken me this long to finish it for that reason, because I needed to step back and go, oh, my God, enough with the driving and the running, <laughs> you know? I think you're just mad over that helicopter board. 
Yeah, I am. But well, that, that's a topic <laughs> for another. That's a topic for another show. But um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the problems are that that multiplayer is being used in place of a good story or like decent AI or even sometimes gameplay because they're saying, "Fuck it, we're not going to waste our time on this. Let's just let the players do it for us." Because basically, when you have your game really centered around multiplayer, you're letting the players create the story and the AI and the gameplay. Yeah, well, it, it happens. I mean, it's one of those things where it's fucking yeah. Explosion Man just happened to be one of those games that did both ends. It had a really good single player, and it had a multiplayer, which is based on the single player, and just expanded on it because you need teamwork at that point. Yeah, well, you know, it's always going to be, there's always going to be arguments. I mean, I, I, I'm looking in the chat, you know, and, you know, Ant begs to differ with your theory on Explosion Man, but you can engage him in that in the chat. But um, I think that, you know, if, if we continue on the path of games just being more multiplayer-driven, it's going to become something, well, where, you know, you want to bring social aspects to gaming, and that's fantastic, but you know what it is? There are certain games, it's like, it's like when, when you're a kid, it, it's always fun to play fight with your friends as a group, but once in a while you need that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, you need to whoop somebody's ass one-on-one -on -one to, to make yourself feel good. And that's how it goes, you know. It, 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 it's a shitty analogy, but it, that's what it boils down to. Like, multiplayer games are fun, but sometimes you just need that one-on-one. -on -one. You, need, you need to just prove yourself against the computer. And, you know, gaming, gaming is slowly losing um, touch with that aspect. Yeah, definitely. All right, homie. Well, let me get into this uh, movies. Uh, thanks for the call. No problem, man. I'll talk to you. All right, man. You got it. Thanks. All right, movie time. Uh, first off, for fans of Entourage, Mark Wahlberg said recently that the show has uh, two seasons left and that more may or may not be added, but when the, the, the show wraps up, they're going to use a movie to close it out completely when it's time to finally end it. So, you know, for those of you that are uh, uh, great, huge supporters of Entourage, know that you have two more seasons and a possible movie to look forward to. I... um personally have watched Entourage a few times, not my thing. It's funny in some respects, but it's really all about Ari. Like, Ari's the, the selling point for me on that show. Anything else doesn't really, uh, you know, engage me as such. But still, um, for those of you that are hardcore fans, you can enjoy the fact that you got two more years and um, a movie to go with it. So we'll see where that goes. I mean, you know, they did it with Sex in the City and it was successful. I'm more than sure an Entourage movie will make money. Now, here's the first thing for this next bit of news. Every few years, uh, a unique cast comes along that end up being put in every movie and every franchise possible to extend their shelf life. A good example of this was the cast from Friends. You started seeing these guys and these girls in all these movies. And you're like, okay, whatever. A lot of the movies sucked. Utter dog shit. Some were marginally okay. Some were, meh. Nonetheless, you know, it happened if you go back in the days with the, um, with the Brad Pack, same thing. 
you know, they were together in a movie and, you know, they, they, they went into other projects and they just saturated your, your screens for years and years and years till you got sick of them. Now, a new group has come along that is doing the exact same thing. That group, my friends, is the cast from Twilight. Of course, Twilight is, uh, I usually shit on Twilight a lot for a multitude of reasons, and there's, there's reasoning. There's reasoning why I shit on Twilight, and uh, I'll go into it on this show a little later and over the next few weeks. But the fact is this. When you take a cast and you fucking put them everywhere, after a while, people just get fucking tired of them, and they're just like, look, fuck them. It's happening with the Twilight cast. And the first character that's getting all the attention is Taylor Lautner. And you know what? It, for those of you that only know Taylor Lautner as the wolf in New Moon, do yourself a favor and watch Spy Kids. Not Spy, yeah, not Spy Kids. Uh, Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Because he was Shark Boy, which I couldn't even begin to fucking believe until I look. And I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the fucking, that's John Talbane in fucking Twilight? Really? It's ridiculous. Now, his newest venture is that he will be playing Max Steel. Yes, the toy Max Steel, for those of you that aren't familiar. Years ago, when they decided that, you know, they wanted to make all the toys compete with Barbie, they came out with a Ken doll who was an alleged super spy that came with all these gadgets and all these shits called Max Steel. Short-lived, kind of popular, had a little cartoon, a decent following. Guess what? Guess what Hollywood is doing in their, in their infinite wisdom of originality? Let's make a Max Steel movie. And let's make Taylor Lautner Max Steel. Are you fucking kidding me? Really? Of all the shit that you can put out there, of all the many, many great ideas, there's probably people that may be listening to this show, that may be home, unemployed, that probably have wonderful film ideas that are written down on scraps of paper next to their toilet bowl or on their computer with the hope and the dream that someday someone will take interest in it. And you know what? Those people aren't getting these opportunities. You know what we're getting? Fucking Max Steel. That's what we're getting. And then you're sullying the career of this poor kid, this 17-year-old kid who's tossed into to being the shirtless werewolf, because not for nothing, you're nothing more, dude, than the shirtless werewolf. That's it. That's what you are. There's nothing else. There's nothing else I know you for. This is how I know Twilight. You got the emo girl. You got the sparkly vampire. And you got the ab wolf, the brown dude. That's it. That's all I fucking know. There's nothing else that I need to know about those characters other than that. And the fact that they're taking this poor kid who, you know, he was in fucking Shark Boy and Lava Girl. You know, Twilight was his big thing. And then you toss him into something that is just the most stupidest franchise idea ever. That's like when I heard rumors that they were going to do a movie about Stretch Armstrong. Who the fuck is going to watch that? Are you really going to plunk down money to watch a movie about Stretch Armstrong? No. 
the only way Max Steel is going to be successful is if they gear it towards tweens. That's it. That's the only demographic that's going to jump on the Taylor Lautner bandwagon. It's going to be tweens. Not adults that are rational and free-thinking, unless they're, you know, uh, Twilight fans that are boiling over. It's going to be tweens. That's the only people that are going to enjoy this movie. Not the purists, not the people that are fans of, of you know, engaging storytelling. And, um, of course, Ant proceeds to put in the form of adults free-thinking. And you know what? We are, because as adults, we can make a, you know, competent choices about whether we choose to be a victim of programming or not. And one of the things that happens is the Twilight phenomenon is exactly that. There's those that have read the books and watched the movies. Then there are those that base their life on the Twilight uh, universe. They pretend to be vampires. They're sparkly. They buy the fucking gray pea coat like, like stupid uh, Robert Pattinson. All that shit. The fact of the matter is that adults, we, we can make choices in the sense of, hey, we want to watch this or we don't. The, the tween generation is victims of programming, what they see on TV, what they hear on the radio. Those are the ones that go, Mommy, I want to go see Twilight. And blah, 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 blah. My wife went to see Twilight with one of her friends. She said the theater was predominantly full of, little, of young little girls and young teenagers who all they did was fucking applaud when Taylor Lautner appeared short, shirtless on the screen. This is our fucking future. This is what our generation is made up of. It is fucking bleak, people. And the fact that there's a movie made on a character that's about as obscure as fucking color forms is beyond me. But, you know what? We'll see what happens with the little trailer and, and, and the marketing machine, and we'll see how it moves it forward. As of right now, I don't see it doing well. But, who knows? Let's talk some box office numbers, folks. Uh, Twilight was defeated by The Blind Side that jumped from number two to number one this past weekend, earning $20.4 million and making $129 million in three weeks. Um, the film had a budget of $29 million. It's made $129 million, so it's shattered their numbers. Uh, the New Moon, of course, is number two, made $15.7. In three weeks, it has made $255 million. The film had a budget of 50. Uh, the movie Brothers with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Tobey Maguire uh, debuted at number three, earning 9.7. Uh, Christmas Carol jumped up to number five, earned 7.5 million. It's made $115 million. It had a budget of 200 million, not looking very successful. That piece of shit, Old Dogs, which is just the most god-awful movie I've ever had the chance of seeing any footage of, fell to number five this week, earning 6.9. It's made $33.9 million. The film had a budget of 35. God, I hope it doesn't even meet the budget, because it is god-awful. Armor debuted at number six this week, earning $6.6 million. Uh, 2012 fell three spots to number six. Also, with $6.6 million. Um, it had $148.7 million already in the pocket. The film had a budget of $200 million. Not really super successful. Ninja Assassin, which I saw, you can check out the review on mytakeradio.com. Fucking awesome. Fell two spots to number eight. 
film earned $5 million. It's made 29.7. It had a budget of $40 million. I definitely can see Ninja Assassin breaking even or actually surpassing the $40 million with DVD sales. We'll see what happens. Planet 51 fell two spots to number nine, earned $4.3 million, and its uh, three-week total was 33.9. The film had a budget of $70 million, which is unfortunate because it looked like a real interesting take on a, ch- on a kid's flick. We'll see what happens. Um, Everybody's Fine debuted at number 10 at $4.2 million. Interesting, but uh, definitely a movie that I knew wasn't going to make any money because it just looked god-awful also. Now, Spider-Man 4. For every ounce of excitement that I had for Spider-Man 4 initially, it's fucking gone. It's gone. There's a, there's, I, I can honestly say there's like 3% excitement. 3. And I'll tell you why. According to Movie Line, John Malkovich is going to play the Vulture in Spider-Man 4. Not a problem. Actually, I actually feel bad that I hadn't even thought of him to play the Vulture. No problem with that. Um, I think he'd be a great character. He had a great dynamic. But here's the kicker. They also reported that Anne Hathaway is in talks to play Felicia Hardy. Okay. All right. Not totally bad. Anne Hathaway's okay. She's, you know, she's cute. She's not outrightly, you know, oh my God. But, she, you know, she's cute. She's, she, she plays her parts well. Decent actress. No problem. Now, here comes the fun part. Instead of playing the black cat, she is going to be playing the Voltress, which I'm more than sure is a, is a uh, female equivalent of the Vulture. And of course, right away, they shut it down. All of a sudden, it's like, oh no, that's not true. That's not confirmed. Neither of these actors have been cast. I would like to find Sam Raimi and grab him by the collar of his little dinky fucking shirt and tell him, you motherfucker, read the goddamn comic books and stick to the fucking story. Stop coming up with this new shit that you think is going to be marketable. It's fucking not. New Goblin, I let slide. I let slide New Goblin. Interesting take. Not overly terrible. Fine. No big deal. His involvement in the movie, minimal. Not too bad. Didn't detract. What ruined Spider-Man 3? Venom and emo dancing fruit Spider-Man. That's what ruined Spider-Man 3. Why? Because Sam Raimi decided, I'm going to go in another direction with Peter Parker and make him an emo fruit instead of fucking just letting Peter Parker be Peter Parker. This is, this is bullshit. Why can't these fucking assholes just go and say, you know what? Let's read a couple of comics. You don't have to read 20 or 30 of them. You're going to go and read five or six and get an idea of who Black Cat is, what she's all about. Black Cat, 
Let's run down the list, people. Stick with me. Black Cat, Cat Burglar, Scantily Clad, Platinum Blonde, Smoking Hot, Rich. Basically, Marvel's equivalent of Catwoman. To be played by a girl from the fucking Princess Diaries. Are you fucking kidding me? What, what, about, what about Jessica Biel? Athletic. Good looking. She can't do it. Charlize Theron. She can't do it. I can, I can go down a fucking list of women in Hollywood that can play that role. Oh no, let's create the Vultress. What the fuck is that? Is, is she going to have wings? Is she going to fly around after Spider-Man? With her witty dialogue? Is there going to be witty dialogue between the two of them? And a love interest who dresses like a fucking bird? How, what is there sexy in that? Nothing. You're, you have a chick dressed like a giant fucking pelican as your love interest. I, I'm done. I, I, I'm so disgusted with, the, with where this is going that it, it, it's unbelievable. Look. Why isn't Marvel getting involved like they are with Iron Man and Thor? I'll tell you why. Because they decided, let's give the rights to Sony and let Sony do whatever the fuck they want. No. Because you're dealing with the character that is your fucking meat and potatoes. Spider-Man is the Marvel Universe. Yeah, you can say the Avengers, Captain America. No. Spider-Man is the fucking Marvel Universe. That's what he is. When you think... Marvel, you think Spider-Man. Yeah, some of you, yeah, Captain America, Wolverine, X-Men, whatever. No. Fucking Spider-Man. When you read comic books growing up, you know what's in the fucking corner in a square, in a little black and white square? The head of fucking Spider-Man. Your fucking number one franchise. And you guys decide, let's just create random shit. Because it'll be interesting for the character. Why can't you just stick to the fucking books, dude? Look. You want to put the vulture in the movie, right? Go ahead. Put the vulture in the movie. No problem. You want to put in, what happens to my buddy Dylan Baker, who's been in all three Spider-Man movies playing Kurt Connors? When the fuck is he going to become the lizard? Is he ever going to become the lizard? How is he going to wipe his ass? Who knows? But you know what? The guy's probably not getting a shitload of money, but he's in there for three movies with the promise, allegedly, that he's going to be a villain in a future movie. What happened? What the fuck happened? Put the lizard in the fucking movie and the vulture, or put the lizard and black cat, or put the vulture and black cat. Don't put this random shit, this vulturous shit, and expect that the, the purists, you know, the real Marvel fucking readers, are going to sit back and cross their legs and go, yeah, that'll work. No, fuck you. Sam Raimi, fuck you and fuck Sony for coming out with this stupid-ass shit to try and make Spider-Man fucking different. Read the fucking books and stick to your shit. That's it. I, I can't spend every fucking show yelling at this shit. It, it disgusts me that they can't get something so simple as Spider-Man right. They got Iron Man right. They got the first two X-Men movies right. Fuck, they even had the Hulk right in The Incredible Hulk. You know, there, there are going to be, and I'm more than sure in, in the chat, you're going to see people make, you know, certain commentary that, yeah, th th there are certain nuances that, you know, didn't make it totally accurate to the book. But you know what? The overall presentation was there. The mythology was there. 
the overall aspect of, yeah, that's the guy. Like, don't get me wrong. When I first saw the Incredible Hulk movie and I saw the Abomination, you know, sure, he didn't look like a giant iguana. You know, he didn't look all like a reptile and shit. But you know what? You knew his character. You knew Emil Blonsky is the Abomination. They wanted to go a little bit on a different scale with some realism. But the character was cool. I, I, you know, I just see Slick in the chat. He's saying they didn't get any of the X-Men movies right. You know, I, I, I beg to differ, and I'll tell you why. The overall presentation of X-Men, I'm not talking about the storyline, I'm not talking about the actors' costumes, who played what, I'm just talking about the overall scheme of things. The X-Men movies are like this. You get a whole bunch of kids with unique powers. They're in a school, they, they work with a bald guy in a wheelchair, and they fight other guys of equally villainous proportions that have equally weird powers. That's the overall story. With, without getting into characters, that's the overall story. Then, you get, here's your core group of characters. We need a Wolverine. Okay, got him. Cyclops. Okay, that's fine. Jean Grey. Yeah, that works. Storm. Got it. Beast. And eh, maybe later we'll add him in. You know, that's your overall core group of characters. Sure, the costumes aren't movie accurate. Sure, they didn't act comic book authentic. But you know what? In the overall scheme of things, that is, is X-Men. Yeah, you can go, and like I said, you can nit, not nitpick, but you can go into different things and make um, your assessment on how you felt the movie was. But in the grand scheme of things, the overall presentation is just that. It's, a, it's, you know, a certain core group of, of, of heroes that are the quote-unquote X-Men. I'm more than sure they sat down with, the, with, with Marvel and they said, all right, who can we put on screen that people want to see? Number one, of course, is going to be Wolverine. Number two is going to be probably Cyclops because you're going to want to do special effects. Jean Grey, Professor X is a given, and then you can throw, you know, certain characters in there to fill that void. The overall group core of the X-Men franchise is that. You know, you're good, a lot of people are probably going to disagree with that, and that's fine. You know what? Because it's my take radio, hence my take. So that's how shit goes. When you go into the second X-Men movie, same thing. Core group of characters, let's throw in a few more. You know, Nightcrawler, very well done, great addition to the X-Men franchise. Then you go into the travesty of X-Men 3. Certain shades of brilliance, but when you got the juggernaut running around going, I'm the juggernaut bitch because of, you know, YouTube, that's not, that's not working. Not working. It's, it's absurd. It's taking a, a, the overall dynamic of a book and translating it into, into film. You can take some things out. You can add some things. But don't change the overall fucking picture because people are going to get annoyed. It's like... The, the, the Venom thing in Spider-Man 3, which I'm more than sure, you know, you're going to say, I've beaten it to death, I've beaten it to death. But look, you go back, let's go back to Spider-Man 3. The origin of Venom, okay, you can't, you can't cram Secret Wars into two hours. Let's, let's look at that. You can't. They went with the animated series storyline. Oh, the meteor crashed, and there was this goo, and Peter Parker found it, and blah, 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 black Spider-Man. Okay, fine. The, the Eddie Brock character. Okay, we're going to go with Ultimate Eddie Brock. That, that's what they wanted to do. Okay, fine. The fact that Venom sounds like a fucking harpy, like a vulture, 
kill you, Spider-Man. What the fuck? When the fuck did Venom sound like Iago from Aladdin? When? It's absurd. You know, there's certain things you're going to look at that, of course, just fuck up movies. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the chat, and I'm looking at the chat, and people are just, you know, going through their... Um, you know, their, their interpretations, and they're agreeing and disagreeing, and as always, you know, you can call in and we can discuss it, 347-324-3541. And, you know, we're not going to agree on everything. And I, and I can tell you guys that, honestly, you're all my listeners, and I enjoy the, your support, but we're not going to fucking agree on everything. And the fact of the matter is that when you go to see a movie, you go to be entertained, and there's a core group of things that you look for, and either you think they came off well or you think they didn't. And there are certain movies that do a better job than others. Daredevil, when I watched it first, total bag of shit. I went and watched the director's cut, less of a bag of shit because the storyline was, was tweaked accordingly to make the movie better. No problem. The original Hulk movie by Ang Lee. I, I have my, 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 my gripes about that movie. The Hulk dogs fucking fail. The fact that his dad turned into like a giant electrical fucking dude sucked. The fact that the Hulk looked like he was just like a pudgy dude. The, you know what? The Hulk was the equivalent of me if I just kept eating and going to the gym and did no cardio. That was the Hulk. He was kind of like just big and blocky looking. They wanted to go that route. You know, there's going to be things that people are going to complain about. You go into The Incredible Hulk. You know, the Hulk looked fine. The Abomination, eh. The love interest sucked. But the overall thing tied well together into Iron Man, which is going to tie well and together into Iron Man 2, into Thor, into Captain America, into the big picture. Spider-Man is being handled a lot differently by a, by a different group of guys that aren't as hands-on in terms of what they know about the characters. That is where you know, Marvel needs to get the rights for Spider-Man back into Marvel Studios so that they can you know, do the movie with the right interpretation and not be at the, at the mercy of a guy who really has no idea what the fuck he's doing. It's unfortunate. I think that you know, these are movies that they're, they're the future of your company, and the fact that you're making all these harebrained ideas you know, just because you want to make it different, isn't making the movie better. In the contrary, it's turning people against you, like me. You know, I love watching the Spider-Man movies, but when they get into, you know, what happened in 3 and this bag of shit that 4 is going to look like, I get really disheartened, and I feel that, you know, you're taking a character that's the center of, of your universe for all intents and purposes and just fucking shitting on it. That's like taking Batman and making his costume pink because you want to be different. You know, I think that the, that the whole totally dark thing isn't going to work. You know, let's, let's just make his costume pink. You know, shit like that. Superman Returns, same thing. You know, let's just change the costume a little bit and make it maroon instead of red and blue. Oh, yeah. No. 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 I can't. I can't. I'm going to lose voice just screaming my head off at this shit. So you know what? Let's wrap up the rest of this stuff. Uh, the IMAX Corporation and Summit Entertainment have just announced that the Twilight Saga Eclipse, which is the third film in the Twilight series, will be released in IMAX simultaneously with the traditional theater release June 30th, 2010. Way to go. Sparkly vampires on a 100-foot screen. Oh, I'm so excited. It's, you know, ooh, IMAX vampires. I, you know, I really feel bad that I'm not going to give this movie a fair shake. 
and you know what? Here's, here's how I see it. I don't dislike the movies. They're based on literary works. And, you know, they're interpreting literary works as best as possible. And, of course, like I said before, not everyone's going to be happy. You know what makes me dislike Twilight? The fucking fans. The little fucks that run around, nah, 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 Team Edward, Team Jacob, Team Fuck You. No one cares. It's fucking a vampire, some bitch that he's screwing around with, and a wolf. And the love triangle that ensues. All this extra rudimentary shit, this emo shit, the fans create that. It's not the movie's fault. It's not the book's fault either. It's the fans that make me dislike this movie. And I'm going to be completely honest. I'm more than sure at some point I'm really going to have to watch them to just be able to be, you know, to give you guys a fair shake when I talk about it on the show. It's going to happen. I'm going to have to watch it. That's just the way shit is. But on the same token, it's the fans that have ruined it. It's like I remember when Harry Potter came out, and I was in the same frame of mind. I'm like, you know what? Fuck you, Harry Potter and wizardry and blah, blah, blah. No, I don't give a shit. I waited a couple of years, I think a year or two later, and just sat down one afternoon and watched like three of the Harry Potter flicks. Pleasantly surprised at how good they were. Pleasantly surprised at how well it it, it, it translated to screen. And, you know, I ended up enjoying the movies as they're meant to be, just enjoyed. I didn't break it down like, well, in the book it said, meh, meh, meh. This, this, this scarf doesn't match the scarf that I bought at the Hogwarts replica store. No, no. I just watched the movie with the intent of enjoying it, and I did. At some point, I'll watch Twilight, and I'll feel the same. You know, Bronx from the MySpace video game forum said he watched it, and he was like, eh, it was all right. It wasn't all it was cracked up to me, but he watched it. He gave it a fair shake. He watched it with the intent of enjoying the movie as it's meant to be enjoyed. And I think at some point, I'm going to have to do the same, just sit down and watch it. But you know what? I'm going to wait for the fans to die down and the fucking news and the media that are fucking kissing this movie's ass before I proceed to, you know, watch it and give it a fair shake. That's how I see it. And uh, with that, I think we... I see Ant's hands raised. I'm going to see if he has anything to add. Ant, you're on the air. Yeah, what's up? I saw um, your hand raised, sir. What do you got? Uh, God, I have so much. I just can't even think of where to start. Um, well, you know what it is. I saw b- before you start. I saw you know some of the uh, some of the things that were mentioned in the chat, and you know I saw I saw Slick's uh, reaction, and you know before I I address what you're gonna say, I'm gonna say Slick watches movies with. A, a very firm belief in that it should be as true to the storyline as possible. And that's great, because you know what it is? That shows that he cares about what he's watching. And that's good, because you don't want to just watch a movie for the sake of watching it. You want to have some type of reasoning behind it. And that's fine. You watch a movie, and I know where you're going, you see the shit for what it is. You go, this is the movie. I'm either going to enjoy it or it's going to suck. Right? But you don't force you, you don't defeat yourself at Jump Street by thinking it's going to suck. You go, all right, eh, it wasn't great, it wasn't, you know. And that's what differentiates all of us as fans of certain genres. It's the fact that we have various views on movies, and I'm more than sure anybody else from the chat or anybody else can call in, and they'll say, hey, you know, I actually like Spider-Man 3. And you know what, I'm not going to attack them for liking it, but I'm going to tell them, to me personally, it was a bag of shit. 
because as a purist and as a guy who's read Spider-Man for years, I have a certain expectation that wasn't met. And that's where we'll, you know, where we'll disagree. With that being said, what do you have? Because I'm more than sure there's a part of you that agrees and then there's a part of you that doesn't. Uh, well, um, going on to what you were saying about how I, how I view movies, all right, we're going to go into a few that I like that most people didn't like. All right, well, there was the Spider-Man series. Of course, I, I didn't like the first one all that much. And, and the second one I liked a little more because it was, it was well, I mean, it was generally better. The third one I liked about as much as the second one, but I also liked the third one better than the first. The reason I say that is because the first seemed a little bit too much like the original 60s, 50s comic where it was like, well, we'll meet again, Spider-Man, and it was like they're using lines straight from old serial comics that don't really apply or don't fit in a dialogue sense in these days. And, like, that kind of stuff irks me. And the fact that all the, the, all the colors and stuff were so v- bright and vibrant that it, it just didn't look realistic. So the first one kind of kind of fell off for me. I mean, I, I liked the action in it and stuff. And for what it was, it was friggin' mutant people fighting and stuff. So I, get, I got that. I enjoyed it. But overall... As like a realistic new age take, it wasn't good enough for me. So the second one was better because it seemed a little more realistic. The, the colors were a little more faded, and and like there wasn't so much cheesy dialogue, and there was a lot more action and over the top stuff. So I like that kind of stuff. I'm a popcorn movie goer. I watch movies just for the action, like Transformers 2. I'm not looking for a deep story. I want friggin' 30 foot robots fighting each other and transforming into cars. That's all I care about. And like Ninja right. Assassin, Ninja Assassin had like basically no plot whatsoever. But I, I enjoyed the hell out of that movie because it was ninjas cutting each other's heads off and stuff. So it was cool. Right. And it was an homage to things that you, you know what, when you watched, oh, here's a good example. If you, have you ever seen the movie American Ninja? No. American Ninja is, there was, a, there was a period during the late 80s throughout early 90s where the ninja thing started taking off again. It's like with the same thing that happens with vampires, it's the same thing that happens with werewolves, at the time it was ninjas. So, you know, you had the American Ninja movies. You know, they were put out by, uh, you know, just, they were made for cables type of movies, but they had a really crazy following, and all of a sudden it became American Ninja 1, American Ninja 2, American Ninja 3, American Ninja 4. And it's because what happens is you take these movies, like right now, we're going through a period where it's all superhero flicks. And you're going to have good ones, really good ones, memorable ones, and forgettable ones. It's just the way shit is. But what happens is some of us go in not expecting it to be just that. We go in with this expectation that it's supposed to be a work of art. If it's a movie based on a book that's nine pages, a comic book, or 12 pages, you can't expect much. It's a matter then of how the person directing it interprets it. If it's a comic book fan, they're going to say, hey, you know, this is how I read the books. This is how I want my movie to look. You know, that's why John Favreau did a good job with Iron Man. He had, he had history with comic books. And, you know, he said, all right, this is what's going to work. This is what's not going to work. Obviously, Iron Man has his detractors as well. Because you, but you know what it is? You can't please everybody. But me personally, I felt that, accurate, that in terms of a comic book interpretation, Iron Man fit the bill. It did. Spider-Man 2 was, I think, the truest form of Spider-Man comic book to film out of the whole franchise. Because they gave Dr. Octopus, you know, some death, some character. You know, they, he wasn't just a fat guy with eight arms. 
you know, he, he, he had a, he had meat and potatoes. He had, you know, you, you had interest in his character. And that's what I'm saying. If the movies are engaging, the characters are engaging, and the, sh- the storyline's a little shoddy, eh, you know, it is what it is. But if you, if you walk away satisfied, that's all, that you, that's all you can ask for. If you analyze a movie too much going in, you're going to end up hating it from Jump Street. Pretty much exactly it. Like, I, I used to be like that. I used to expect a lot from movies. But then that was when I was, like, in my early teens. And, like, ever since then, they had, like, years and years and years of getting fed all this crap that had, like, no story or, or horrible versions of the story. It just, I, I realized, like, what am I even doing? I'm hating every movie that I see because I keep on judging which, what it should be. So after a while, I just pretty much was trained by, move, by like, the, the typical bullshit that was fed to me to just take it for what it is. And, like, I, I just... I hope people would eventually get to the point where it's like, you know what, Hollywood can't make anything better. They can't do a good job. So just, you know, watch it and enjoy it for what the hell it is. That way you can at least have some fun out of what's coming out of Hollywood instead of being totally bored and disappointed all the time. Well, that's what happened with me. I, you know, I, t- I took film class in high school, and film class ruined me because I really sat there, and as I'm watching a movie, I'm just analyzing everything. like, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong. And I really had to take a step back and de-evolve a little bit and go, you know what, I need to watch movies like when I was a kid. I'm like, wow, this is really cool, and just watch it. If it sucks, I'm like, eh, it sucks. If it didn't, I'll say it it didn't suck. And, you know, yeah, I'll pick apart certain things, but, you know, of course I'm going to be passionate about things. That's where, you know, I play both sides of the coin. I can be the casual movie watcher, or I can be the hardcore fan. And, you know, that's what's happening. Yeah, pretty much. Like, like also... I'm pretty much the same way. Like, I'll go into most movies and just get into a casual and be like, oh, okay, this is going to be pretty good because it's going to be robots fighting, it's going to be mutants fighting. Cool. And if, it, and if it, like, fits the bill like Iron Man did and, like, the second Hulk movie did pretty much, like, I'm just like, okay, this is better than cool. This is, like, really good. So I go from, from fun movie to good movie. And it's like, when it's a good movie, then generally it's got story, it's got, you know, loyalty to the, to the source material, it's got fun aspects to it. But a fun movie is just, you know, we got mutants, we got werewolves, we got vampires. They're all fighting each That's other. It. Everything looks good. It's not bad special effects. There you go. Have fun. I'm like, okay, That's I spent 10, 10 bucks to watch this movie, and I got more than I could see in real life, so I'm happy. That's it. I agree. And, uh, we'll see yeah, what happens. There you go. All right, man. The last bit of information I'm going to throw out there is for... Where the fuck is my, my notes? Oh, yeah. With the, with the whole thing with Spider-Man, which, you know, got railroaded um, that Ant was talking about, the enjoyment of these movies and the fact that I go into them on all the segments is the fact that you, you go in there, you, you lay out your money, and um, you put your 10 bucks down, and you expect to be entertained for an estimated 90 to 120 minutes, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. When you take movies that are, you know, Oscar-caliber, Oscar-winning movies, um, and you watch them, you're like, holy shit, this movie was good and I got my money's worth. But, of course, you're, you're not going to be 100% happy. Um, a good example is Lord of the Rings. For those that have read books, you know, the Lord of the Rings books, I'm more than sure if they're, if they're hardcore Lord of the Rings fans, they're going to be like, look, this was wrong, this was wrong, that was wrong, this was wrong, and that was wrong. And the fact is, afterwards, to the general public, that maybe read one of the books or two of the books, they're going to be like, oh, man, this was the greatest movie I've ever seen. And that is um, one of the things that is always going to happen. It's going to be one of those things where we're going to, I'm going to come in here every week, 
and shit on a movie or give props to a movie, and you guys are going to, you know, either agree or disagree and share your thoughts appropriately. Unfortunately, a lot of times, we all watch movies, we're not all going to watch them and interpret them the same way. And, you know, some of you guys, I'm, I was looking in the chat, you know, were really on board with certain things I, I covered, and some of you weren't. But the fact is that at the end of the day, the movie's generating exactly what it needs to, which is a buzz, and it's getting people talking. Good, bad, or, or otherwise, the film is getting a buzz. Um, I see hands raised. It looks like Slick is on the line. I'm starting to learn some of these phone numbers. And um, I see Ant has his hand raised again. Uh, let's see what Slick has to add. Sir, what do you got? Oh, sorry, man. I was typing something. Um, I just wanted to go on record because a lot of people say that I just, if a, if a movie doesn't stick straight to the, the source material, I hate it, which is both it's true and false. True. Yeah, it's partially true. I mean, you take a movie, I, I examine movies for the actual movie quality. I like the Hulk because it was relatively sticking to the, the source material. I mean, why they deviated from the gamma radiation for abomination, I don't know, but it, it still mainly stuck to what it, what it was supposed to be, and then it was entertaining. I mean, just seeing the Hulk kick Emil Blonsky in the chest was worth the price of admission for me. Then again, like I said, in for Iron Man, I liked the movie up till the ending because, you know, it, it did a different spin on him having to build the suit. I mean, originally he had to build the suit to survive because of his heart. This time he had to build the suit to survive to keep him getting his head chopped off by the Taliban. And um, and because and, and of his heart, remember, because the guy wired him up in the cave. So it was partially, yeah, it kind of stuck, it stuck partially to it. And then it, it went into his whole, you know, playboy lifestyle. But then it just ended on such a low note with that fight. That fight was just ass. Well, you know what it was? The big finish was, exact, the big finish wasn't so much a big finish, but a setup for, for the end of the movie. You know, it's like, you got to look at it like this. All right, the guy made the, the costume. It's bigger than Iron Man's costume, blah, 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 this, that, and the third. How can we make this different? And how can we make it that the people, you know, you're going to always look at it as, and this is the message that's conveyed, good is triumphing over evil. That's the message. So at the end of the day, the little guy is going to win regardless. Even if, even if Iron Monger was a giant fucking three-story tall robot, blah, 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 the fact is that it's good triumphing over evil. That's, that's the message. So, don't make you a know? movie just to set up for a sequel. That's bullshit. Make a movie to make a movie. I mean, The Matrix was made to be a trilogy, and the first movie stood on its own. I mean, honestly, when I saw it, I didn't even know there was going to be two more movies or even one more movie. Because the first movie stood on its own. Iron Man with the ending does not stand on its own. The X-Men movies didn't stand on, on anything because, I mean, the characters, I mean, granted, you have a fantasy story. 95% of the characters weren't believable because 
everybody except the Hugh Jackman and freaking Patrick Stewart weren't believable as their roles. Their acting was dry and just shitty, really. And I'm looking at this from a movie standpoint, not even a comic movie standpoint. The acting was terrible. The jokes, if you want to call them that, were lousy. I mean, they're joking on themselves and not even well. Well, you know what it is, and it's and it's and it, I see I see where you're going with it, and you know th- th- there is merit to that, but you also have to take into account that these are classically trained actors in in essence in essence dumbing themselves down for a bigger for a blockbuster motion picture, and uh, with that you don't see that there was comfort in the role until the second one. The second X-Men movie, I felt, was better played because Wolverine's character started to acknowledge the animal side. Professor X wasn't as much of a focal point. You know, you've got to take into account, and this is one of the things that I ended up having to do as well. I'm like, you know, some of these jokes and these little, these little one-liners just don't fit, but it's just because they're reading the script and they're being so literal instead of just adding their own interpretation to it and making, it, making the character their own. They're, they're reading lines off paper. I think that in Hugh Jackman's case, he didn't grow into Wolverine until the second movie when he realized that the character had so much depth to him. But you know what it was? He took the opportunity and went to research the character, you know, and he learned about the nuances of the character. So, you know, it's one of those things that while it is, you know, it is annoying in some respects because you feel slighted that the movie wasn't up to your expectations, you, you, you sometimes got to step back and say to yourself, you know, these are guys that have never done this shit ever, you know, that are totally outside of their box and they're trying to make it work. So, you know, I kind of, I took the, X-Men, the first X-Men movie as a rough draft and then I really expected it to improve in the second, which it did. But then it kind of fell by the wayside again in the third because it went back to the old formula of just awkwardness from some of the leading characters. But the only thing that was good about the second movie was the fight between Wolverine and Lady Deathstrike. And that's what ten minutes out of the whole movie, right? And well, you the only reason that... why I enjoyed the Wolverine movie because that sucked as an X movie too. It just was a good movie. It was a decent movie by itself. And again, well, you know Hugh Jackman is? delivered. Right, but but that's what it was because he had already established a comfort zone in the role of Wolverine. So he knew, he's like, all right, I know the character, I know the meat and potatoes of the character, that's why the second Wolverine movie now is going to take place in Japan. Because he said, it. he's like, oh, I wanted the Japan movie first, but people kind of wanted me to set the, you know, you have, they want, the studio wanted me to set the standard and kind of give a, a brief bio on Wolverine, so we had to kind of go backwards a little bit. And, you know, in going backwards, you know, that, okay, we could throw in some X, Y, and Z guys in there. And that's what happened. You got to, you know, the meat and potatoes was there, but the, but the, si- but the side dishes weren't, you know, like, like, you know, all right, let's throw this guy from the Black Eyed Peas in there. You know, let's throw Deadpool in there, you know, for, for, and this was all set up for, you know, the bigger picture, which it always is. It's like, all right, the movie's going to take off. We got to make sequels and we got to spin off characters. And that's what happens, you know, that you, the, the, in between a good movie, there's that, that inkling of sequel and spinoff, always in the background. And then you have your, your ever-favorite Spider-Man 3, which I liked. And I'm not saying it was a good Spider-Man movie. I liked it because Tobey Maguire, as goofy as he is, fits for Spider-Man because... 
He actually he makes does. a better Peter Parker than Spider-Man, but Spider-Man is goofy. Spider-Man throws out one-liners. And yep. as horrible as it, as it is, Spider-Man would do some dumb shit like walk down the street singing. He would walk down the street singing in costume. See, the yeah. whole thing with Spider-Man is, and, you know, we got like three minutes left. The whole thing with Spider-Man is that you, when you put on the costume, you're free. You're breaking character, and you're somebody else. And that's where Peter Parker and Spider-Man, of course, you know, that's where they differ. He's the free spirit. Spider-Man is, you know, the alter ego. What, what annoyed me was the fact that all of a sudden, Peter Parker started to become the pimp and the hero, and, and, and a joke of himself. And that ruined it for me, because that's not what his character's about. His character's about trying to maintain a level of sanity by being a superhero. That's, that's, where, that's, where, it, that's where it started to sour on me, you know, not to mention Venom and a whole bunch of other shit, but that was my, that was my breaking point. And I agree, Venom shouldn't have been in the movie, but I guess we got to cut it off at this point. There you go. All right, my friend. Let me just let Ant on and wrap up. Thanks again for calling in, sir. Later. Hey, Ant, what do you got? Yeah, uh, what I have to say is going to be too long for like two minutes, so I'm just going to cut it dry real quick. Um, Okay, uh, yeah, Tobey Maguire was a really good good, uh, Peter Parker. I'm going to admit to that, and... I think they could have done a little more with his with the, with the uh, one-liners as Spider-Man because in every pretty much every comic I read, he at least threw out one one catchphrase, one-liner. So that would have yep. been a lot better. But um, as for everybody else that was given the role of anybody else, like I can't agree with pretty much any of the villains. Like you look at Willem Dafoe, he does not look any kind of Harry Osborn I've ever seen or Norman Osborn. Nope. You look nope. at. Uh, Alfred Molina, with the he's not German, doesn't have any kind of a German accent. Otto Octavius doesn't even seem like a name to fit a New Yorker. So. Oh no, the, uh, of course you know there are some liberties that are taken, but I felt that his performance as the character he added some depth because you know Doctor Octopus isn't like the deepest villain, so you know it kind of, his portrayal of the character to me humanized him. You know he made him a little different, so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, same with the guy that played Sandman, really. Like, it, as much of a low-level villain as he always was, I mean, he was kind of a super super villain, but, like, no one really cares about Sandman. But at least he had some depth in Spider-Man 3. I mean, he had more depth than Venom, which is the worst mistake they, they could have ever made. Huh? Like, Eddie Brock's whole thing was just, oh, he took my my career, he framed me, blah, 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 yeah. blah, I'm going to try and kill his girlfriend. Like, okay, we get it. That was part of the, of the comic, yeah. But they could have gotten to, uh, what's his name, Topher Grace, to be replaced by somebody bigger, like, uh, I don't know, uh, Brock Lesnar, you know, Eddie Brock, Brock Lesnar, that kind of fits. No, nah, you're yeah. right, my friend. All right, yeah. well, well, we'll go into, we'll go into, we'll go into it next week, because there's like 60 seconds left, but um, we'll definitely touch a little more on it next week. All right, man. All right, man. Thanks again. Later. All right, with that said, uh, this is the end of today's show, My Take Radio episode, what the hell are we at, 23 for Thursday, December 10th. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash akuma25 or twitter.com slash mytakeradio. With that said, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Peace. Red, yeah.